You're listening to Dead Air Podcast, part of SplatterPictures.net. What's up, everybody? Wes, Dead Air, and I here with always... Typical Lydia. Today's show, we're going to be doing the 1982 anthology horror creep show. How old were you in 82? I was not alive. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. Well, it always makes me sad when you weren't alive. It's like you missed the best part. Uh, I think about that a lot when I'm watching older horror movies, uh, especially stuff from the Universal era. Not only do I think about man, everyone in this is dead, but I think about the fact that I was so far away from even being alive. That's how come when I hear about people who are really old, my first thought is, is oh, they could they could have seen that in the theater. Like Stan Lee, when everyone's like, Stan Lee's 94. I'm like, man, he could have seen Dracula in the theater if he wanted to. <laughs> he probably did, too. Probably. I think I was seven when this came out, but it was like one of our favorite horror films in middle school. I'm like grade five or six. Was it one of your favorite horror movies, do you think, because of the fact that it was so bright and comic booky and violent, but also not too dark? Because it's not a dark movie. No, it's not really. Well, let me backpedal there. It's darker now that I'm older. When I was a kid, a lot of the things that are actually dark in this film, totally over my head. I found them boring. I found a lot of stuff in this boring, except for all the bright colors and, yeah, the comic booky stuff and the kills. Definitely when I first started watching this movie when I was a kid, the first thing that I remember was being really excited when it became a cartoon and then being less excited when it went back to live action. What were your favorite segments as a kid? What was your number one favorite segment as a kid? My number one favorite segment as a kid was the the uh, birthday cake zombie. I liked, I thought it was funny. I liked the, it was, it's kind of quick. And it helped my interest. Um, yeah, I would say that. I felt like, yeah, yeah, definitely. It would have been the first story, the birthday cake story. Father's Day. I liked Father's Day a lot, but I also, I really, my number one has to be The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill when I was a kid. Was it because of the fact that Stephen King is overacting like Completely. crazy? Completely. He's a cartoon. He's a fucking cartoon. He, that yeah. part, that segment doesn't need to be animated whatsoever he is animated he is as animated as it gets i do particularly like the visions he's having of what the doctor is going to be like first the doctor's super impressed with them and then the doctor is a cracked meteor and then coming back is like this is going to be painful like thinking about the worst case scenario it's like why would you keep going to a university professor <laughs> yeah, <right? laughs> for all of these things also happens to be a surgeon <laughs> Yeah. They're not the same thing. The Department of Meteors is not where you go to get anything <laughs> removed. It's just a fact. It's true. The Department of Meteors. Yeah, it was a childishness and the overacting and the fact that it was more sci-fi and I was definitely more into aliens and space and stuff like that when I was a kid. It's a very, very sci-fi-y story. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. like many of these things ripped from the pages of EC Comics themselves. That's what Romero and Stephen King were really chan uh, channeling with this film, um, which gives me a great opportunity, Lydia. Oh, 
Yeah, to talk about horror comics, which I love to do. I know. That's part of why I chose this. Too. Really? Oh, yeah. Because <laughs> I've been just waiting for a nice segue so you can talk about comics. <laughs> Way back in the day, there were horror comics. And there were horror comics like people wouldn't believe that were coming out in the 1940s and 50s. Then it all kind of went away for a while. And the reason why it went away was because... Of a lot of factors, but the main factor, public enemy number one, was Frederick Wortham, who wrote Seduction of the Innocent in the 1950s. And then a Senate State Committee occurred in 1954, where comic books were put on blast for absolutely everything that was considered immoral. And EC Comics was front and center. Now, they weren't the only company producing horror comics in this decade. There are even companies that have disappeared entirely because of this. Absolutely. The witch hunts that Frederick Wortham started by just talking all over the world and being paid a fortune to do so because of his book, which, of course, if anybody read it, and I've read segments of it, I've never read the whole thing, but it doesn't hold any water whatsoever. It's ridiculous. And then, as we've learned, as uh, after Wortham died and then new information came into light, you could even see that he straight up cooked his research. He would combine cases of well this kid and this guy did that and he read comic books and therefore he committed acts of violence or these two became homosexuals or or whatever bullshit that he was trying to pull was all completely false so ec comics used to be education comics and afterwards a guy named william gaines took over the company now his father owned education comics beforehand but when his father died in an accident he took over and then he changed the format. A lot of pulp stories and then a lot of horror stories. And that is what exploded over time and became really, really popular. And like, and William Games was one, William Games was one of the people that was sitting on the committee to sort of push back against the feds that were trying to shut down the comic book industry. And that was what came up with uh, the comics code. And the comics code, interestingly enough, which was the idea by Gaines, because let's not have the feds police us. Let's police ourselves in-house. The Comics Code Authority decided to remove words like terror and horror and crime from titles of comic books. You could not publish comic books with the Comics Code with these words in your titles. The crime comic uh, terminology still persists in our Criminal Code of Canada. Remy Couture was charged for corruption and morals for his films, Inner Depravity 1 and 2 specifically, because they were quote-unquote a crime comic. It's absolutely ridiculous. Now, EC Comics, entertainment comics at this point, had Tales from the Crypt. They had The Vault of Horror, and they had The Haunt of Fear, and they had all of these titles that were extremely prevalent. Also, in that era, there was a bunch of other independent horror comics that were getting produced all the time, and frankly, compared to EC Comics, EC Comics kind of looks like you can take Tales from the Crypt, it kind of looked like an issue of like fucking Terry Tunes compared to some of these independent horror comics that were coming out really, really graphic shit. And if anybody's really interested in that, now a lot of the Tales from the Crypt and and Eerie comics and stuff like that have been reprinted now and we can get them. Uh, they were produced by, uh, they were republished by Dark Horse. And so you can have like really beautiful full color, color hardcover editions of these books, but these harder to find independent horror comics uh, what you can do is you can check out this book by Greg Sadowski and John Benson called Four Color of Fear or Four Color Fear, Forgotten Horror Comics of the 1950s. And that has stuff like Mysterious Adventures and um, Journey into Fear. 
The new Rumorg book, uh, Blood in Four Colors, covers a lot of the same, too. It's true. As a matter of fact, the Rumorg guys have done a really wonderful job of compiling a nice little history of the horror comic book and a lot of this stuff. They even go into far more detail um, and they talk about modern comics that are horror and also going back to like Vampirella, which is like a personal favorite uh, horror series of mine. Um, so yeah, you can check those out. It's really, really cool. Rachel Ritchie is also reprinting some really old forgotten um, comics that she found originally on a co-op placement at the Library and Archives of Canada. It turns out that they just had stacks and stacks of old comic books that I, I wouldn't say were seized at that time, but seized publication at that time. And there was little interest in any sort of comic that wasn't specifically a, an American superhero. It wasn't all apple pie all the time. And a lot of those just fell out of favor and then the companies folded entirely. The artists move on to other things or stopped entirely. And she's compiled the one coming up that seems to go into horror the most is Mr. Monster, who is probably the 50s Constantine. Yeah, it's it's a really, really, really disgraceful time in history. These witch hunts from our point of view from our point of view but anytime think about it there was there was public comic book burnings people were destroying these things and if anybody ever wants to know why are these old comics so valuable why are they so rare first of all there's a whole section of people that didn't realize that these would ever be worth anything and they read them and they threw them away the other big problem is that is you would look at massive mounds of these burning comic books and children by the hundreds throwing comic books into a fire that's why they're rare, because a lot of them were fucking destroyed. And the ones that weren't were either from families that were a little bit more enlightened and realized that if their child is reading violent material, it does not mean that they're going to be a violent or disturbed person. And also people who were squirreling them away for safekeeping or just didn't want to get rid of them. So, yes, these comic books have survived, but they usually command a really big price. And the people working on the comic books at the time didn't think that they were doing anything wrong. But then when you have... All of these news programs and all these government officials telling you that you're you're wrong, you're horrible, you're wicked, you're corrupting the youth of the world. I mean, these were decent people. They were they were coming home from the war. They were trying to make their money and feed their families, and they thought what they were doing was just publishing, right? They didn't think that they were doing anything wrong, and and certainly they didn't think they were corrupting anybody. And then when the Commerce Code Authority came in, the comic book creators that didn't go out of business, and then the people that, um, and then the people that stayed in comics were doomed to writing kitty stuff because the Commerce Code Authority was fucking ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous, and everything took a hit, and especially the readers because the reason why the horror comics were so prolific for a time was because of the fact that. When you were reading funny animals and superheroes back in the day, you were meant to outgrow them by the time you were 12. These, the writing was not sophisticated enough to hold anyone's attention once they got to a certain age. But if you were 13, 14, 15, hell yeah, you could read horror comics and see violence, sexual innuendo, adult themes, more graphic morality tales that other comic books were telling anyways. But under the comics code, that just couldn't happen anymore. So everything got goofier. Everything got more childish. And it wasn't until basically into the 1970s that a lot of these horror uh, comics started getting reprinted. More horror comics started coming out. And then slowly but surely, the, the, the noose 
tightened around the comic book industry was lifting. But like you said, there was a time there where everyone thought they were going to be out of business in a year because the sales were plummeting. And And you don't use the word witch hunt lightly. It really, truly was a coast-to-coast witch hunt. Yeah. Ferreting out these crime comics, as it were, Mm -hmm. and pretty much turning an eye on anything that showed any sort of a crime, a scantily clad woman, a gun on the cover, oh, yeah. um, let alone blood, guts, gore, cemeteries, ghouls, ghosts, anything like that. I'm surprised Casper survived. <laughs> Casper the satanic ghost. He probably started out far more rough around the edges than probably, the Casper right? we know. <laughs> like, they, like they showed Casper like, will you be my friend? And just like holding them too tight, like of Mice and Men style and just like breaking their neck. Well, like even right now and... You can do some research on the Comics Code, the Comics Authority. Mm -hmm. You can search online for the Comics Code, and it exists word for word online. So you can like look at what the rules were that they were that were imposed upon comic creators back then. But even now, like I had said, the Criminal Code of Canada still maintains a lot of these really, really outdated ideas, just because the laws haven't been updated or people just ignore them now. But part of the obscene publications right now. Everyone commits an offense who makes, prints, publishes, distributes, circulates, or has in possession for the purpose of publication, distribution, or circulation, any obscene written manner, picture, model, phonograph, record, or thing, <laughs> whatever, case. any anything, any media, because they pretty much blanket it with or thing whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> or thing whatever, or makes, prints, publishes, distributes, sells, or has in possession for the purposes of publication, distribution, circulation, a crime comic. And that is a huge blanket statement. Of anything that depicts anything. any prime, any crime whatsoever, and that was a huge problem because what um, if you hear stories from some of the old timers that are still around from back in the day with the comic book industry, they'll tell you insane stories about if the person checking your book that month had a problem with sex, then oh you're showing a little bit of cleavage, get that out of there. Or if a certain person was overly sensitive towards violence, any sort of aggression would have to be taken out. So it was even so that blanket statements like that yeah. enabled people to just well I'm not I don't like this personally so get rid of it. But then if you turn around and say well what is it exactly about it like oh who are you to say that this depicts a crime they're like well anything anything that depicts a crime uh, real or fictitious events connected with the commission of crimes real or fictitious so money laundering is a crime comic whether mm. occurring before or after the commission of the crime so living off the avails of is a crime comic mm-hmm. for the purposes of this act any and this is the current criminal code of canada any publication a dominant characteristic of which is the undue exploitation of sex or of sex and any one or more of the following subjects namely crime horror cruelty and violence shall be deemed obscene so that is my entire life yeah naughty naughty lydia bad (laughs) all the books on my table right now including the one on how to tie uh knots this dictionary of knots that is all a crime comic Mm -hmm. i'm looking at you poppy (laughs) seabright it's that is too wide of a blanket statement so anyone saying like oh well how does this uh detective mystery comic fit in they're like well it's depicting crimes yeah if there's something that is like, oh, well, this is just a pinup book. Oh, well, they have a picture of a girl with a policeman hat on saying no, no, no with her pointing finger to another girl that's dressed up as a maid. That is a depiction of a crime comic. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely unreal. 
let alone digging up corpses and stuff and puking out worms. Yeah, absolutely. But these were what these comic book creators were un- up against. And it people like EC Comics, they couldn't survive. Not in that environment. But the good news is, is a lot of people were inspired by these comic books, including people like Stephen King and George Romero and anybody that was really interested in perpetuating their love of horror in, in a different medium. So horror comics survived in a lot of different ways. Vault of Horror and Tales from the Crypt became movies in the 1970s. So you had that bleeding over where people were like, yeah, I remember this stuff. And then, like I said, these books started to get reprinted. And then movies like Creepshow got made, which is a horror anthology, which is our first horror anthology. Is it really? Yeah, it it's, is. It's the wow. first one. Look at us go. I know, not too bad, right? Well, well it explains like some of the lines at the beginning of this where you think, you know, maybe if you're like a Twisted Sister fan, you got this whole flashback of the beginning of the <laughs> Twisted Sister video. <laughs> That's exactly what I was thinking the whole time. A Twisted Sister pin on your uniform? What do you want to do with your life? I want to rock. Of course you do. Don't we all? Now... That is our, like, 80s kid brains working. Absolutely. Our parents watching this, though, were thinking of this, like, almost satanic panic when it came to the mm-hmm. crackdown on the comics code. Mm-hmm. Now, there's a line at the beginning, like, see what he's reading, this horror crap? That was the sort of thinking that was brain. these parents were brainwashed into. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, it, you were dealing with the Father's Knows Best Eisenhower era where people thought oh you're clearly corrupting the youth like it wasn't it wasn't you know the the rapidly changing life that we're all experiencing together it's not the disruption of traditional family life that world war ii had it's it's not all these other factors it's the comic books and, yeah. and horror movies worth them went after horror movies too there's a really uh famous um interview a televised interview that he did uh alongside Vincent Price, where he basically was put there to put Vincent Price on blast. If you could ever imagine, like, Vincent Price, you're corrupting the youth of the world with your horror movies, those cobwebs. And I'm doing an amazing job. (laughs) And a lot of people didn't know how to deal with this fucking guy because he was just, you know, he was a a professor. And so he, he had fucking letters and titles and well a lot of people didn't know how to deal with the pmrc and like al gore mm-hmm. isn't that al gore's wife mm-hmm. it, it it was tipper gore yeah that, that went after uh that after metal and uh and and that's the music industry had their parental advisory uh crackdown crackdown and that was almost the exact same scenario yeah. that happened decades before with comics um there was no public cd burnings it, when Tipper Gore was on the loose, but no, oh, she probably piled them all into a nice big pit somewhere. I'm sure there was probably some sort of burning of something. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, they didn't have people as articulate to go up against uh, Wortham as they did uh, up against uh, Tipper Gore. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, William Gaines did his best, but I mean, you're t- you're dealing with like like this is the thing it's like these these people producing this horror this horror genre of comics you're thinking like oh they got to be like out there and totally bombastic no they were just like reserved guys in glasses and and just like i don't know i'm just isn't this a fun story it's fantasy it's it's morality tales they they truly believe that and they are if you look at those old ec comics it's really about bad people doing bad things getting their comeuppance at the end that's all it is 
Like, and, and yeah, it's dark, it's super dark, and it's violent, but like I said, EC Comics was the most famous, but all those indie horror books were way more violent, way more violent, like, like believe me, EC Comics <laughs> is pretty fucking reserved. Tales from the Crypt and, and Vault of Horror, pretty fucking reserved compared to some of the shit that was going on in other books. But, and, and so the, when the Senate committee formed, they were using independent horror books and yelling at the people at EC Comics, this is what you're doing. They weren't doing that. Yeah, it's sort of like taking a, a case of somebody in the 50s had committed like an act of like gay rape, aggravated assault, male on male, and then they're going to pin it on the comic books that they read 10 years before. Mm-hmm. He's going to be drawing those sort of parallels. Of course, he's going to be drawing parallels between underground comics and independent comics and the larger mainstream ones that have to respond and have always had to respond to the consumer input and aren't going to print something completely fucking heinous. They're not out to corrupt morals and they never were. Whereas some of the underground comics might have been. I'm so glad that it came around 360 because now we have crossed. And if something's (laughs) going to corrupt my morals, (laughs) something that you don't want to leave out for children to find, I think it's something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you do want to leave it out for children to find. Well, there's always that. Let me ask you this. Uh, Moving away from horror comics, because we could talk forever about it. Are you a big fan of horror anthologies? We've never talked about this. I'd have to say yes, I am. Mm -hmm. Because it's one of those things where if there's like... I'm a big fan of anthology, printed anthologies as well. Mm -hmm. And I write short stories anyway, so I like being in anthologies. Mm -hmm. And I've always liked them. And Stephen King's short stories were my first love as far as Stephen King goes. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I definitely do. There's always going to be a story in there that stands out. Mm-hmm. Even if it's like surrounded by crap, we're pretty lucky with Creepshow in that every single segment is very good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've always really liked horror anthologies. Horror anthologies have a really deep history in horror. Anthologies themselves, as a as a as a cinematic format, have existed for a long time. Early horror anthologies can uh, dating back to like Germany in 1919, uh, Eerie Tales. Um, then, of course, you Black Sabbath from 1962, I think. And uh, Quieten, uh, a Japanese horror anthology. If you like uh, ghost stories, and I do, you can check out uh, Quieten as well, because that's a really, really cool one. Yeah, literary works have always kind of tended to that as well, because fairy tales are only so long. Um, Irish ghost stories and folk tales are only so long get things like yameshibai or however you pronounce that Mm -hmm. japanese ghost stories that are being serialized in anime wonderful use of the short story and wonderful use of the short story in film anime comic written word like it all comes from the same sort of fount that these folk tales that we've always told campfire stories basically Mm -hmm. are only so long yeah Mm -hmm. stretching them out doesn't always work stretching them out over like a six sequel film franchise doesn't always work either (laughs) jason Voorhees, i'm looking at you what 13 13 fucking things of that is a campfire story that is a short story he is a short story Mm -hmm. that we've like pulled like taffy yeah yeah i know you like it i really really do but i can definitely see your point you could take something like the crate as far as um one segment of creep show and you could definitely pull that out into 13 fucking spinoffs immortal ape thing yeah he gets out at the end it's true. Where's the crate part two? Bottom of a fucking river, I guess. He gets out. It's true. He lived for 150 years under a stairwell. Who's think he can't handle 15 minutes underwater? That's a good point. I don't understand. We'll get to that, I suppose. 
when Creepshow came out, there was a lot of fanfare around it because of the fact that it was this collection of like horror royalty. Romero, Stephen King, Tom Savini were all getting them together. And then you had just like random actors like Leslie Nielsen. Ted Danson. Ted Danson. Why not? Yeah, Why when not? you said everyone in this is dead, talking about other films, I was going to pipe up that Ted Danson's still alive. He is alive. Yeah. Uh, looking good, the silver-haired fox. But for the most part, this movie came out and it was... It, 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 it did pretty well for itself. It's got a couple of sequels. It had a, a comic book, which is actually really hard to find these days, that came out pretty much around the same time. A beautiful uh, hardcover edition. Which I really wanted. Even as a kid, I really, really wanted that. So mm. bad. I remember, I remember watching this and wishing it were real. <laughs> Even though I had a stack of horror comics of my uncle's, I didn't equate the two in my mind. I thought that this was so much better. That Creepshow was the real deal. Mm. My last roommate has a copy of the Creepshow comic book. It was on our bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Um, not in the best condition, but I think at that, at this point, any condition would be fine. Oh, completely. Yeah. Completely. The bookshelf was too colorful. I didn't notice. I was blinded by all the stuff going on. <laughs> it's yeah. gone now. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Have you painted that area dark gray for me? <laughs> no, I've put another shelf and I'm starting to fill it with my own stuff. Colorful things. Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> It's all my comic books. Gotta put them there. I remember watching this and not only wishing that Creepshow were real, which is hilarious because it was not long after, and it wasn't for years after that I did learn that the comic graphic novel actually existed. Um, We watched this so many times. I almost want a tattoo of the cover of this film because I rented it over and over. Me and my friend Terry rented it over and over. My mom and dad. Talk about a cover that absolutely fucking grabs your attention. It's so fucking cool. Yeah. It, it, It honestly, it's just that fucking skeleton and the fucking robes and the crystal. And you're just like, oh my God, I'm so fucking in. I don't even know what this is. Nothing can live up to that cover, though. So when you flip over the back, you're like, eh, all right, well, we'll see. <laughs> the Crypt Keeper is the, my my second in line for host, mm-hmm. anthology host, wraparound, mm-hmm. even though the ghoul in this doesn't even talk. No, the They ghoul, beckon. It's true, yeah. That's like it. But mm-hmm. they're cooler for some reason than the Crypt Keeper to me. They're cool, I think, just because it's a lot more sly and it's more animated, so he looks really smooth and shit. The uh, the, the 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 horror hosts, uh, the 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 Crypt Keeper, the Vault Keeper, and then the Witch from the various EC comics uh, that existed, and then HBO when they did the, the Tales from the Crypt Keeper show, they made the Crypt Keeper this whole other thing that was just larger than life. Like rivaling Elvira. Oh, yeah, exactly. I mean, and and just, you know, rapid fire those horror puns and it's absolutely fantastic. And honestly, my first exposure to any of this was HBO's Tales from the Crypt because I used to watch that every week with my mom. That was uh, our ritual. I can't remember if it was Saturdays or Fridays, but it was one or the other. And I watched it every, every single week with her. I think the thing that I like the most about the Ghoul and Creep show and maybe was turned off a little with the Crypt Keeper. The Crypt Keeper wanted to be your buddy. The Crypt Keeper was actually pretty benign. Mm-hmm. The Ghoul and Creep Show is basically encouraging you to steal back the things that were taken from you mm-hmm. and go against your parents and all of humanity's wishes mm-hmm. and maintain your corrupt morals and kill your dad. It's true. And it also is proving the dad's point, right? It, it's like, yeah, it did do these things and see what happens when you took something away. But also, maybe if the father had read 
the Creepshow comic book, he would understand that doing naughty things means it will be terrible and bloody retribution to you. He probably could have used some Not always. I always go back to the crate because it's now my new favorite as an adult. Really? Yes. Well, let's get into the whole fucking movie then. (laughs) (laughs) So the movie starts off with a framing piece, like a lot of anthologies have. Um, This one a lot more interesting than just, you know, Boris Karloff sort of very tiredly talking to the camera. Um, you have a scene right out of fucking Twisted Sister. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> about a little kid. Uh, the little kid was actually uh, Stephen King's son, um, for horror trivia fans, if you were interested. Um, getting his comic book taken away by this father, this authoritative father, who's, you know, right out of the 1950s. And once he takes the comic book away, we kind of start our movie. There's The, the host so, sort of shows up and in a practical effects shot and then it turns animated and little me gets super excited for mm, about 30 seconds even adult me still gets super excited it's a fantastic intro i absolutely love it the score is fucking brilliant it ties together all of the other framing devices in this film as well mm-hmm. that was if, if you didn't have that opening animation a lot of the other stuff is going to seem really fucking weird because this movie straight up does comic book paneling Mm-hmm. from those old horror comics usually reserved for fantasy scenes or flashbacks but it does do them and if it didn't have that opening animation you'd be like oh what's happening here that's weird yeah or you'd forget that these are supposed to be comic book stories come mm-hmm. to life um without that framing device it might be jarring but yeah. you come to expect it and want it and almost need it mm-hmm. to bookend every single story you know the first story is father's day and as a kid i really really liked it as an adult i like it it's not my favorite anymore but i love the look of the zombie for lack of a better term and this is one of the most classic tales that you could ever have in an EC comic, it was uh, one of William Gaines's, Gaines's favorite methods of having somebody who had something bad happen to them in the real life, even if they were a miserable shit, which this guy is a miserable shit. Oh, yeah. And them to be resurrected. And they never, don't, why? Don't worry about no, it. No, they're just a disquieted spirit. That's all you yeah. need to know. Yeah, it's like they died and now they're not dead anymore. Yeah. So we have this family sort of getting together because, well, there's been a death and... Let's have dinner. And they're rich. It's Father's Day. Yeah, it's Father's Day, you know. And, well, there was a father around, cantankerous old fellow that just wanted his birthday cake. And I guess when he was yelling for it, one of them had enough. Yeah, and Bedelia, who yeah. was the last remaining one at home. All the others had flown the coop, as it were. Yeah. Or were unceremoniously fucking ousted from the nest because they were all accused of being vultures and if i can work in one more bird analogy i will but like (laughs) he was cruel to her Mm -hmm. ridiculously cruel always screaming and yelling it seemed he probably beat her who knows there could be like you know all sorts of abuse going on there definitely psychological abuse because she was the only child that was left around to put up with him Mm -hmm. and of course accused all the time of just being after his money like everyone else Mm mm-hmm Horrible person. So, of yeah. course, him screaming for his cake. He wants his cake, Bedelia. Yep. Mm-hmm. It's the slamming of his cane on his chair. Chairs not unlike the chairs we're sitting on today. Yeah. And a cane not unlike the cane I used when I had busted up one of my legs. Oh, I thought you were going to talk about the cane that you used to hit me when I say things you don't like. I want my cake, Wesleyna. <laughs> Where's my cake? I get your cake for you there. 
Miss Piva, don't you worry about it. See, if Bedelia would have had that sort of disposition, everything would have been a little smoother, and she wouldn't have had to bash his brains in with a marble ashtray. But she fucking did. I love the delivery of that story, too, because it is like a classic campfire tale. It's, you know, when I have stories of my ancestors, they are not delivered like that, and I wish they were. Not only in opulence and around a fire and, you know, in a massive fucking rich people's country home in the British countryside, but... Just to have it delivered the way that this is so theatrically delivered. And just when Ed Harris goes to put his match out in the ashtray, they're explaining that it's the marble ashtray Mm -hmm. that she probably used to bash his brains in. And it's just so jarring, especially to a kid. And you've got the story going on where the old man is slamming his cane onto the chair and those jarring noises are just amazingly fucking riveting. Coming from someone who is a really big fan of the comic book as an art form, looking at the paneling that they're doing in these flashback scenes is absolutely brilliant, especially one of the the best panels in the whole movie. But this panel, the death blow of this old man when he dies, it has the weeping, bloody panel, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is something that's kind of fallen out of favor in modern comics. But if you see anybody trying to do throwbacks to old horror comics, Chilling Tales of Sabrina or Afterlife with Archie, those types of comic books, you might see throwbacks to these types of paneling, but you don't see a panel like this all the time. And I absolutely loved it. And I was like, ooh, I'm stealing that. And it can't really be used in any other film, right? No, no. You couldn't do it at all because people would be like, what the fuck is that? Yeah. But it, it, so this sequence is really, the paneling in this uh, flashback sequence told the murder of this cantankerous piece of crap. And then the death blow dropping on that panel is absolutely amazing. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Those it's good are- how your brain can quickly cross from film to comic books pretty much flawlessly. Just because of the way that this film is set up. Mm-hmm. Purposefully, right? They, mm-hmm. There's no, they're not making any bones about it. Like, this is a comic book. We're taking this medium and we're putting it into that medium. And that's how you're basically supposed to enjoy this. Another film that does do this from time to time throughout, not as consistently as Creepshow, and it's not horror, The Dangerous Lives of Alter Boys. Have you ever seen that? I don't think I've seen that, no. It's a, if someone enjoys this comic film, weaving sort of like sin city is is sort of mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. as well and it's still not as effective as creep show but dangerous lies of alter boys definitely does use that same technique oh cool mm-hmm. now they do break out of that paneling and back to normal film techniques mm-hmm. when ed harris is going through the graveyard mm-hmm. taking sort of a breather because they're all waiting on aunt bedelia this mm-hmm. inf- now infamous aunt bedelia yeah who has been tearing down the country road she's actually on her way actually she's already there mm-hmm. but she tears in sort of like cruella Deville in her giant car and she has already headed to the graveyard mm-hmm. they didn't notice they're assuming she's lost track of time. Ed Harris is getting bored mm-hmm. after a pretty weird dance scene. It's a, it's not quite as bad as Crispin Glover's dance from Friday the Thirteenth, but only because that goes on longer. Yeah, but man, is it close! Very Talking Heads inspired, right? It's like, like Ed Harris is doing this thing with his head. I'm like, that's your move, man? Yeah. That can't be your move. It's very strange. It's fucking it's like weird. they only had like five seconds to film that. Like, I don't know, just dance, do something and he didn't feel yeah. like dancing. Or he he wanted to do the sprinkler, but his arms were tired, so he's like, I'm going to do it with my head. 
Very strange. So, of course, that tires him right out. Uh, he's all tuckered out from his super crazy dance moves. So he's in the graveyard lighting his match off the head of a stone cherub, which always struck me as so blasphemous. Right. I'm going to have to do that someday. That's my new life goal. To shock. I think you could shock. If you were standing with a group of people, like let's say you're at a funeral and you're waiting for them to lower the coffin or something like that, or you're just sort of, you know, when you get to a funeral and you're actually outside in the graveyard area, you're kind of waiting around for things to get going. If you did that, I think people would talk about you more than they would ever talk about the person who died that day. Probably. It's like this time where uh, I was at my grandmother's funeral and just the greatest thing ever happened in my entire life. And so I was sitting there silently, just, you know, you're, you're collecting your thoughts and you're thinking, I was like, wow, my grandmother, what a long epic life. Good for her, you know, bucket of wind. All of a sudden I hear this sound and it sounds like a fucking truck revving its engine. I don't know what it is. And I have time to sort of like look around what it is, Lydia. It's my great aunt, my grandmother's sister, just farting loud <laughs> and proud for a solid 45 seconds. So you thought this was an engine. And I had time to look around to try to detect where the noise was coming from. And I looked to my aunt, whole, st- standing over with her rocker, and just that sound coming out of her. And she's talking like it's not even happening. And my mother... And a bunch of family members are standing around her, just acting like it didn't happen. And I had to get up and run, run, Lydia, out of the funeral home to get to the parking lot. Because I could not hold in the howling laughter that was bubbling to the surface. And I couldn't be that guy. But that's all I remember about my grandmother dying. (laughs) (laughs) That's all you remember. Aside from that... Her life was a bucket of wind. Big old, yeah, exactly. But your aunt had that much wind in her as well. Huh. See, what you should have done is taken the attention away from her by lighting a fucking cigarette off a cherub's head. Right Light the fire. With- yeah. Right in the funeral home. Right in the funeral home. You could have saved the day, Wes, but instead you had to go out and, and release candy the laughter. right out that fucking <laughs> Candy man so you could laugh your ass right off. <laughs> Uh, I never laughed so hard in my life. That's awesome. I love funny funeral stories. Maybe it's the Irish in me where every funeral is a funny story. But that is fun. That's a good one. Thank God for ants. And Aunt Bedelia, who's actually in the graveyard having a drink of like wild turkey or some really cheap gross whiskey. Yeah. I think I'm rich, eh? I'll yeah. show you. Exactly, right? And then, all of a sudden, for no apparent reason, which is the best reason, when she's thinking about this old fella, he bursts from the soil. It's probably just him hating her happiness so much because a flower she leaves, a honeysuckle, the one single flower, because I guess she still admires him as a father for some fucked up reason, is a symbol of happiness. That was is what the honeysuckle represents. Really? So it's sort of like, you know what? Yeah, I killed you, and I'm fucking happy. So yeah, no lightning strike, no weird green mist in the air. 
he just comes bursting out of his grave. And this corpse looks fucking great. I love how this guy looks. He's got the the maggots on him. He's uh, skeletal but fleshy. And glistening and raw. And just covered in soil. He looks fantastic. And his shuffly moves. Yeah. And he's got, yeah, meat and muscle, but it's all ground up and red and gross and rotted and dirty on every bone of his body and his voice. Yeah. I'm not going to imitate it. I can't. But he wants his cake. Where's my cake? That's all he seemed to say in life. So, of course, that's all he can say in death. Mm-hmm. I respect a man who so wants cake that he will cheat death to get this cake. That's a man I can relate to. That is a man of perseverance. That is a man of goals. Is this why maybe it was a favorite amongst most children is because it had to do with cake? Maybe. You think? I think it's because it has a very colorful character. Uh, This zombie... I mean, there's other... To be fair, there's other undead and there's other creatures and special effects going on in this movie. Mm -hmm. But I just think that he's around for so much of it and it's a stock and slash, even though it's a very short one. It's probably as long as a stock and slash story that a lot of people would probably prefer them to be. They're just like, yeah, get... 10 minutes, get me in, get me out, I get it, he's back, he's killing people. Pretty much, pretty much. That is exactly it, in that it is a campfire story. It's that short. It's a, it's an old England ghost tale, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you want know, all those weird, though? Speaking of Ed Harris lighting that cherub, this is where he meets his end, just after this scene. And he falls, does he fall into the grave, or does he lie down into the grave, he falls into it, He falls it, right? into the grave, and he doesn't seem that surprised to be beside the corpse of Bedelia. True, but he's also super slow to react to the fact that this 500-pound tombstone seems to be just slowly slide. And I mean slowly. We're dealing with a minute to a minute and a half of this thing sliding off of its pedestal. Yeah, and it's not like it's teetering. It's like moving and then moving, and you can hear it scraping stone on stone. And he's he's looking at it. Yeah, he has lots of time to scramble out of there. He even has a lot of time to look fucking scared. Yeah. But but he doesn't. He doesn't move. It's so weird. I thought to myself that he has ample time to get the fuck up and get away from that. Maybe he's distracted by the body. And then the second thing that distracts him is seeing the father there in all of his cadaverous glory. So he's had... A dead body that he's lying beside mm-hmm. that he's pretty sure must be Bedelia. He's got this gravestone that's being shoved onto him. And then he sees a giant rotting corpse that's up and walking animated. Mm-hmm. All of those things are scary. Mm-hmm. Does he react scared even for a moment? No. He he reacts more confused. I don't... Not, not confused as though he's a puppy that just heard a fart. But more confused. Like he's trying to process what he's looking at and maybe he just can't really contemplate it but i can tell you one thing the least bizarre thing that he's looking at right now is the 500 pound stone that's going to crush his head that's also the most immediate danger body of your relative that's sad but a body can't really hurt you this cadaverous thing pretty weird but it's not really doing anything except for standing in front of you and you know what if you survive the stone you could probably get away from this cadaver but you got to get away from the stone first. Yeah. Remember, there's a yeah. process here. There's a process here. Let's, we, he had enough time to analyze danger. Yeah. Now you can put it into a percentage. What's the most dangerous thing happening right now? Move away from that. 
Anyone, anyone would have a bigger reaction to this giant, yes, 500-pound fucking gravestone about to fall on you. Before he even discovered that there was a body next to him, he would have fucking moved away from that stone. Yeah. Maybe he was all tired out from all that dancing. Oh, you know what? Mm. That's it. Yeah. He had muscle cramps or something, and yeah, his reaction time was... Do you think the last thought going through his crushed head was, I wish I didn't dance so hard? (laughs) Probably. Or damn, I really should have tried again with that whole water sprinkler. Well, the rest of the family isn't going to be too much better either because, well, their maid gets fucking killed and then one of them gets their head. This is, I love this. The head just getting turned all the way around. That's fantastic. All the while, every time that this guy shows up to kill people, he still just wants his cake. It's Father's Day. Where's my cake? Well, he gets a cake. Even if he has to make it his damn self. With an irreverent twist. You love this way too much, don't you? This is the type of horror that I love. This is the horror that says, pretty fun, right? Yeah. Isn't it pretty fun? Because you have two people having a door open, and instead of, your immediate thought is, oh, he's going to... Come out and kill them or... Crush their heads together or do something super grotesque or whatever. No, he has got this woman's head on a platter with icing all on top of it, with candles on top of it. And he's like, it's Father's Day. And then it's like a shot of him, like, ah, Father's Day. (laughs) It's great. It's fucking fantastic. And I've got my cake. (laughs) We used to quote that so many times. Oh, my God. Like, the whole story could have melted away into forgetfulness. But all we would know is, where's my cake, Bedelia? And I got my cake. (laughs) My God. Is it cruel? And none of the, quote, unquote, good people survive. Ed Harris is the first to go. Mm -hmm. And he's the most blameless out of all of them. And the bad guy, the father, makes it out alive, question mark? Mm-hmm. Like, well, he gets what he wants. He gets his Father's Day cake. Yeah. How mm. horrible. It's really a horrible story. So lovely. And that end <laughs> scene is so perfect. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of cake that I would like to see somebody try and make. That's what Pinterest is for, right? Looking at pictures of cakes and shit. I'm going to go looking for if somebody has recreated that in Marzipan. Just fucking an episode of Cake Boss. Today on Cake Boss, we're making a cake out of some woman's head. I don't know. It's crazy. Cake Boss. I would watch that episode. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Unlike most anthology stories, though, this ends and it goes into the next one. Like, mm-hmm. you've turned a page, for fuck's sakes. Mm-hmm. There's no... The Crypt Creeper doesn't swoop in with some sort of moral or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Just right into the next one. Mm-hmm. You're left to draw your own conclusions about what happened to those characters. You could probably assume that they were killed or they ran away. Doesn't really matter. We're moving on. They all sat down and had a nice slice of lady head. Yeah. <laughs> um, next up, we have... Eight-year-old Lydia's favorite, The Lonesome Death of Jordy Verrill. Starring Stephen King himself. Which is kind of amazing. He does bit parts in almost every single film that Mm -hmm. he's done the screenplay for, written. But in this one, he has the starring lead and almost only role. Aside Mm -hmm. from a few flash scenes of his father or photos of his father and like a flashback of his father. Mm -hmm. And the dream sequences or like fantasy sequences of the doctor and the department of meteors. Mm -hmm. He is the only guy in this. Mm -hmm. And does an amazing job. Totally cartoony, like you said before. Yeah. He's out of a fucking cartoon, but I guess that's what he 
wanted to do. He, he said, I'm, I'm going to do this and this is my character and I'm a really larger than life country bumpkin that finds a meteor that lands on my property and I have big plans, big plans, Lydia, to sell it for $200. My meteor, my price. Yep. I, even in even in 1982, $200 is pretty low, right? I don't know. New England countryside, total bumpkin, maybe $200. He said he's going to pay off that bank loan. I'd like to know what the like, fuck. What bank, the loan. bank loan. Maybe it's supposed to be taking place in an earlier and simpler time. Well, the TV uh, that he had seemed to be even older than what you would have in 1982. But it could just... He's watching a 30s film, A Star is Born, for crying out loud. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe it is going to be like the 50s or something like that, where 200 bucks is a lot of money. Who knows? I mean, we could all use $200, but for a meteor, I would try to up the price. But that seems to be what he wants to do. Now, he touches the meteor, which I guess would be the reaction to a lot of people. Oh, I'm going to touch this. Even though it's smoldering and in a crater, you might want to let it cool off. But he has the idea after he burns his finger that he is going to pour a bucket of water onto it, and that ought to take care of it. But when he's looking at his finger, Lydia, something's going on. Gross, gross, gross. It's those icky blisters, and he puts them in his mouth, and he... <sighs> that wasn't a cartoon sound effect. That was actually a, a noise that Lydia made with her mouth. <laughs> her grossed-out mouth. Yeah, totally. Oh, my God. Even as a kid and now, that really gets to me. But that was really impressive. I feel like you could do Foley work for, like, Hanna-Barbera or something. If I cared enough about cartoons to do shit like that, yeah, probably. <gasps> How much do they pay? $200. To my voice, my price. No, you're absolutely right. It is disgusting, but he doesn't really seem too concerned about it. When he pours the water on the meteor, cracks in half, which, as you know, Lydia, completely null and voids the value of this meteorite. <laughs> oh, Jordy Verrill, you lunkhead. Oh, God. $200. I wouldn't give you 10 cents for it. So sad. It is sad, but he's got to try anyways. And he's also distracted a little bit because this weird... His fingers are now turning green. They're not just blistered and gross looking. Oh, those blisters gross me out so bad. Mm-hmm. Um, it's spreading, whatever it is. He keeps having these fantasies, let's call them, daydreams about what it's going to be when he brings his meteorite to this professor at a university, I The guess. Department of Meteorites, to De- be exact. Ah, Department of Meteorites, the official uh, branch of meteorites for that uh, particular... Department of Meteors, actually. They call it a Department of Meteors, which I do believe that this is actually a meteorite. But... I think you are right. Yes. So this doctor goes from being super impressed in his mind to being not impressed. Now, this is where comic book paneling somewhat comes in. They sort of frame... The entrance scenes to these with these white wavy lines indicating, again, some sort of paneling. It's not as heavily uh, done as it is in the first story, but this works just as well. You still get that sense that this is what they're doing. Um, But now he's in dire straits. But he's got to try anyway, so he puts the two broken parts in the meteorite into a bucket and he puts it aside and he's going to go and relax. Now when the meteor cracks in half, this blue liquid sort of bubbles from it and he just seems to pour it he doesn't really he just seems to unceremoniously pour that into the dirt and i guess that's the catalyst it's hard to say is it the rock itself or was it that liquid in there i think it's anything that touches it obviously because he basically only grazed it with his fingers and Mm -hmm. that was enough for his infection uh the water definitely doesn't help 
it spreads whatever it is. So it's like thinking of it like a spore because it does come out rather spore-like mm -hmm. and almost like a moss, which spreads in that same sort of fashion. And it's treated like a mycelium channel underneath of his property with the water and where it had originally landed. So it's spreading underground, above ground, in the air almost, mm -hmm. probably, the way that these spores are spreading. So any contact in the water just acts as a vehicle for it, I think. Um, I was tempted to think of the meteorite itself as a seed, but seeds don't behave that way. So it's just a spore. It just contains spores, I believe. I would say that you're right. Now, when he wakes up the next day after realizing that he's got something on his fingers and it's turned green and it seems a fairly serious growth, but he doesn't know what it is, he envisions that the doctor is going to have to amputate his fingers. And of course, like any doctor would, he's going to take a meat cleaver and I guess just hack it off. And the whole time... He takes it out of an autoclave, which at least it's sanitary. It's true. But he just runs his finger down it and he's like, this is going to be extremely painful. Rah. Just I mean, the kind of doctor you want. Yeah, like white coat, the fucking, like, uh, what do you call that thing on top of the like doctor? Like a reflector. Or the reflector. It's got everything. Like, it looks right out of a comic book, like, to look deliberately cheesy. And they're using, like, um, a wide-angle lens for things, like, semi-distorted, lending itself to this daydream mm -hmm. feel to it all. And, man, when he gets up the, the next day, or I guess maybe even just a few hours later... The growth, you can see from where the meteorite is, there's a path from where he was walking all the way to his home. And now he's got himself some moss man, chest hair, a little bit of a beard, and he doesn't really know what to do. You're kind of dealing with a guy who's clearly has a very modest education, trying to figure out what he could possibly do to get rid of this stuff. And it's itchy. And when he looks, I like when he looks down his pants and he complains, oh no, not there. <laughs> it's so sad. And I think mm -hmm. that's another reason I like this as a kid because it was one of the only ones that really delved into any sort of sexuality or admission of genitalia, right? True. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, it, yeah, yeah, for sure. Just being like eight or nine, I was like all about genitalia. All genitalia all the time. But it is kind of hilarious that it is spreading like chicken pox. And that was one of the other things that maybe got to me as a child, more so than the genitalia, was that I had suffered chicken pox quite violently. And me and all my friends had suffered chicken pox quite violently. And where he's trying to get some sort of relief from this stuff all over him, let alone the feel and the itch of it, the look of it. He's afraid. He's almost afraid to go to the doctor, but he keeps fantasizing about how horrible it's going to be when he goes to the doctor. It's a fucking hell of a lot like having chicken pox. Did you ever have chicken pox? I had chicken pox as a wee lad so young I actually don't remember having them. Oh, I was old enough for it to be really horrible. It sounds really horrible and I've definitely... Even just either I get a new tattoo or I get a rash or something like that and that gets really itchy and, and, and I think about, oh my god, I just want this itching to stop it's so annoying i couldn't imagine what i must i must have just been howling as a baby and just super itching oh, i've seen little kids like little little kids with them and it's like they, they don't really care too much yeah. it's not it's no more itchy than a couple mosquito bites really when you're little it's like for every year i swear there's like 50 more of those little spots show up so when you're 10 there's hundreds of the fucking things mm -hmm. it's horrible 
Uh, I've seen an, a 16 or 17 year old boy with uh, chicken pox. Oof. It looks insane. Is that not getting to the point where it's getting pretty dangerous? Yeah, yeah, because you're having them inside and everything. Sort of like what Jordy Verrill is definitely going through. He's having it in his throat, like as the story progresses. It's inside of his throat. It's like inside of his organs. You can tell that it's definitely like infecting his brain. And chickenpox can do the same sort of thing because you do begin getting them in your mouth. Really? And down your throat. Really? Inside your urinary tract. Oh, no. Yeah. Even at like 16, and I only saw that. I didn't experience it. I was probably 8, 9, 10 when I had my chickenpox and I didn't have them like inside my mouth or anything like that. Uh, but I saw what it looks like when somebody's going through that horrible torture. And having seen that, looking at what Jordy Verrill's going through, it became a very visceral body horror to a little kid. Mm-hmm. I like how his father comes to him. Outside of the fantasies that he's having about the doctor or Department of Meteors, take your pick, mm-hmm. his father shows up in the mirror mm-hmm. to tell him that, no, it's the water that it wants. Because mm-hmm. he's going to jump into a bath, I guess, or a shower. Yeah, a bath. Just to appease this horrible itching. Because mm-hmm. he's basically given up. He fantasizes about the doctor. He's not going into town to see the doctor. He's mostly forgotten about the stupid meteor. Mm-hmm. And all he cares about is that this this horrible itching and that it's spreading all over. When mm-hmm. they show scenes of outside, it is spreading absolutely everywhere. Mm-hmm. All over the ground, all over the fence, all over this house. It's, it's, it's just covering everything. It's like green moss, like a spiky, weird green moss. Mm-hmm. Growing almost like like iron and magnets iron filings and magnets. it's true it's very sharp very alien looking which yeah. is probably deliberate they probably wanted to make it look like a plant make it look like it's something that's growing but don't make it look like anything that you've really seen on earth before you can do stuff that has allusions to tall grass or something like that but make it just a little bit different We'd started out in the first segment with sort of almost like a gothic look to the filming. And this one is a little more sci-fi in mm-hmm. that it's using a lot of greens and a lot oh. of these like verdant alien landscape that the world has become thanks to Jordy Verrill and mm-hmm. his stupid meteorite. The score is reflecting a more yeah, science a fiction. Theremin being used where mm-hmm. in the first one it was a little more of synth and very light with the orchestral. Mm-hmm. This one is going into synth orchestral with theremin. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the only segments that uses a theremin and rightly so. Mm-hmm. So it's the music of the spheres as it were. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Now, even though his father has appeared to him in a vision and told him that it's the water that he wants, whether it truly is a voice of his father trying to help him or if it's just his infected brain now coming to the proper conclusion, but perhaps through an authority figure that he viewed as far more. Because fa- the vision of his father makes you wonder, well, wait, what happened here? Why did your father look put together and intelligent and you... <laughs> are you are acting like you're acting what happened here well it could be just he seems simple right simple-minded yeah. and I rem- i'm reminded a lot of uh job in lawnmower man yeah that's a yep, that's a good comparison very fair yeah it's the same sort of character that was used just a simple simple-minded farm guy mm-hmm. right and i think that that's part of it and maybe they're more prone to anthropomorphize things mm-hmm. um talk to the reflection of their father 
in the mirror, as mm -hmm. it were, on a regular day, let alone when he's being infected by like an alien microbe. Now, at this point, he's not only it's it's complete. He's just it's hard to even tell that there's a person there anymore. Yeah, he, he looks like a army guy under a ghillie net. Yeah, absolutely. He just looks like a dude completely covered in moss. So he's whimpering, he's upset, and he's reaching for a shotgun. And or... He's complained throughout this whole thing that Veril luck is one thing. It's bad. B-A-D. Bad. <laughs> and this is the one time that he wishes for good luck. Mm -hmm. Because if he misses this shot, then what does the rest of his life entail being a giant shrub? Well, he doesn't miss because it's point blank and he blows his head off. Let me ask you this. As a little kid, you're watching that scene. This is your favorite thing. You watched a man blow his head off. No, I watched a shrub blow its twigs off. Oh. Is there any blood? No, there is not any blood. Is there any even green slime? There is not any green slime. I stand corrected. So he didn't, he wasn't a man that blew his brains out. This is all the whole green blood thing. This is the whole green blood thing and why aliens don't have red blood in video games and cartoons and whatever. Or no, not supposed I, to. I know. It's, it's like you take skull-eating demons and, and all this kind of shit and you make their blood green and nobody cares. Yeah, and nobody cares. <laughs> take the blood out of the equation. Take the brains, the skull fragments, the whole fucking mess that is suicide by gunshot. And it's not a suicide by gunshot. And he's hardly a man at this point anyway. So in your little kid brain... He's this poor, sad little shrub that normally has bad luck that finally got some good luck. Which would be him ending his life. He is really the most pathetic of all the characters in all of these stories because of the fact that he literally didn't do anything but have a meteor land on his property. It was all bad luck. Bad, viral luck. B-A-D. <laughs> he wasn't even a lunkhead. It was just bad luck. Mm -hmm. I do feel sorry for him now as an adult. Back then, it was like, well, what else would you do? Yeah, sh shouldn't have touched it. Yeah. Should have just left well enough alone. Yeah. But now I realize how tragic that really is. But on to the next story. Because who cares? It is the lonesome death of Jordy Verrill, after all. That's true. Now, this one coming up, I remember as a kid liking the absolute least. It was so dull to me as a kid. Same here. I, I'm glad that you had the same complaint because that doesn't mean that I was like a cold and heartless and disconnected youth. It was, it's, it's a very different story. It starts out very noir. It starts out. It, it's, and slow and plodding and boring and adult. And I don't care who's sleeping with who. I just don't care. Mm -hmm. Now as an adult, I like this one quite a bit because I'm loving Leslie Nielsen's performance. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Love once this. I got to the end of the segment, not that I haven't watched it since I was a kid, but I haven't watched it with a critical eye. Mm -hmm. And I haven't watched it wondering about my thought process as a child versus now, which mm -hmm. I was doing this time around. The very, very end scene and the very, very last line was a quotable quote, something that me and Terry used to say to each other all the time. And Terry was very good at quoting that quote mm -hmm. with quite the look to her face. So this did have sticking power. Mm -hmm. The very end of it, I think it's just because of the spectacle of the aqua zombies that it's stuck in our head mm -hmm. so fucking well. But the whole beginning, almost it's, forgettable. It, it's just adults in plain clothes blah, talking to blah, each other. Blah, I can tell blah. you what lines are stuck out to me. Ted Danson comes to the door. So what happens is Leslie Nielsen seems to be a, a wealthy fella. He's living on the shore. And Ted Danson comes to 
his house and wants to get in the front door. Leslie Nielsen has got some top-notch, state-of-the-art, crack security. It's a fucking chain on the door. <laughs> and Ted Danson's line, and I laughed out loud when he fucking said it, was, I can bench press 300 pounds, can get through this door. First of all, Ted Danson, you can't bench press 300 pounds. All right? Scrawny little dude, 300 pounds. He didn't seem that scrawny to me. There's no way. I would bet a fucking thousand dollars. I would put it on the table and slide it over to Ten Danson at that age, at any age, and say, if you can bench press 300 pounds, you can have that thousand dollars, and I won't even be mad. I won't even be mad. I'll put up the one thousand dollars if you guys both bench press a 300 pound coffin lid. But, I mean, I could, though. I'm trying to remember how much I can bench press just to try and save Ted Danson here a little tiny bit. Because I'm convinced he could bench press at that time 300 pounds just fine. I don't think he could bench press 300 pounds. I think it's a ridiculous line. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> Into the more boring dregs of the long lead-in and the boring premise. It's, it's a love triangle. Boring. I know, for you. But for me, it's very interesting because I love a guy that is so hell-bent on revenge, he's going to cook up this fucking James Bondian revenge on them where he's going to make Ted Danson bury himself in sand on the shore and wait for the tide to come in. Oh, you skipped about ten minutes of fucking preamble. See, if the short started there, I'd be sold. Why can't they just have a little flashbacks to who the fuck Becky is? Um, that's actually a good point because when I was watching this, I was taking notes and I was looking away and looking back and I've seen this movie before, but I couldn't remember what the genesis of why Leslie Nielsen was so mad. I was thinking, is he in love with her? Or was Is that his ex-girlfriend? His current girlfriend that Ted Danson's cheating on? I was trying to remember what exactly what was happening, but, but by the time I had figured it out, good news, Ted Danson has to bury himself. <laughs> and Leslie Nielsen's uh, straight, uh, has, a, has, a, has a really strong reputation as a very straight actor, even though the fact that he is known best for uh, the Naked Gun movies and Airplane and and uh, the Space Travesty movies. I mean, uh, Mr. Magoo, like he's no he's done a lot of those spoof comedies, really high octane comedies where it's a joke every 50 seconds. And but but what people don't realize or maybe don't really care about is the fact that he has a lot of dramatic roles. He's done horror before. Mm -hmm. We've seen him in uh, Prom Night. Uh, I know him from Forbidden Planet. I actually knew him from Forbidden Planet more than I knew him from the Naked Gun movies. I've only watched his like comedy stuff by accident, purely by accident, walking through a room and only unfortunately taking in any of it through osmosis because I, I don't like comedy and I don't like that. But even in his comedy, I find his delivery isn't much different. It's extremely dry, super detached. That is exactly why the comedy works around him because you can he can be a guy that can have all these ridiculous things happening around him and he'll still act like nothing's ridiculous happening around him and so almost in the same way he was really reminding me in his performance in this scene as watching uh an actor like john lithgow be a bad guy that really intense very straight very quick confident line readings Mm -hmm. where 
you know, looking at looking for like when I would see John Lithgow in a in a role where he was being serious and a killer, like in either in Dexter or when he's played villains in other movies, you know, even he's like, uh, like whatever role he's doing, it, it was weird to me because I mean, to me, John Lithgow was like, oh, it's the guy from Third Rock, like the crazy funny guy from Third Rock. Leslie Nielsen, I was so used to seeing him at a point in my life because he really blew up as a comedic oh, actor. Oh, huge, yeah. Um, that, like, that was what I knew him. That's That overtook any other role that I ever saw him in before. And so going back and watching this, it was the same sort of jarring thing. Or like when you saw Robin Williams be a bad guy or a killer in a movie. It was Jim Carrey be a bad or, guy? Or, uh, Jim Carrey. I was yeah. like, like something about it, it seems somehow more threatening to me it's weird because you think of someone as funny and lighthearted, and then you're seeing them not being funny at all and being really scary it's and like intense. watching the maniac remake yeah exactly yeah. it and really really pulls you into that character and out of whatever it was that you've attached to that actor exactly and so even the scene where he's got ted danson at gunpoint and you have to bury yourself and if you don't I'm going to shoot you. And there's even comedy injected here and there in this that yeah. is not fucking funny because he's so good at being fucking crazy and threatening yeah. and cold and cruel because when he's, Ted Danson's yelling, help, help, help. And he's like, yell all you want. No one's going to hear you. And he starts mimicking him, yelling, help, help. <laughs> and it's funny. Yeah, it's But funny. it's not fucking funny. Yeah. Or when he's he's like, oh, maybe I'll just bury your whole head. And he like just pushes sand in front of his face and Ted Danson's go, and it is kind of funny. And then he's gonna clean him off and he's smacking his face yeah you know oh get that right there and get that right there and then he just lies there and then in my favorite scene is when he turns on it's so convoluted but i i was thinking to myself whatever we're going with this he drives up all these cables and it would be TV. so much easier if it was nowadays when we have like the saw and the collector and all the things that use cctv yeah but not like with cables like not cctv but like like i don't know normal like your fucking iphone yeah use your motherfucking iphone yeah i know but yeah. Like, i got an iphone here i got an iphone here check it out we're watching your girlfriend at a farther down in the beach and she's going to be drowning with the tide, much like you are, and you get to watch her die, and and I'm recording this, and I'm recording this so I can watch it later. Yeah, and and he's just casually telling this, even though it's ridiculous. You got an old tube TV, and then he's got a VHS set up behind them, and he's driven out all these cables. But he owns the whole property; no one's going to be around. So whatever. He also fun. owns like spools and spools and spools of fucking coax, which is <laughs> hilarious to me. It is, but I guess if you thought to yourself, well, how are we going to get him to show this woman drowning? Well, I guess we'll just have all these things. It doesn't really sound ridiculous. And honestly, no one is talking about the absurdity of it. So it doesn't really come off as absurd if you're just actually watching the story and you're just And it was sort it. of a unique and new idea where That's it's true. rehashed and overused now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Especially, you know, you're talking about the early, early, early days of all this these video cameras footage and VHS tapes. Camera and... car phones the size of a Kleenex box. Yeah, so it would have it would have seemed very he, yeah, this Leslie Nielsen's character is very cutting edge and has a lot of money because who just has this amount of disposable technology, even though it seems super dated to us. Yeah. But at the time, at the time, like at the time, cutting edge technology. And, yeah. and I loved how Leslie Nielsen was describing how 
what's going to happen to you? This is how the tide works. This is what's going to happen to your body. Maybe you can get out. You can hold your breath. He's and, and, and I thought to myself, how does he have all of this information about killing people via a tide? He knows a lot about this. Then I started wondering if anyone's ever died like this. Has anyone ever been walking down a beach and then just see a head poking out of the sand and be like, oh, fuck. It seems like a mob thing to do. Yeah. You Especially know? when he's making comments like, can you move your arms? Doesn't it feel like you're in wet cement? Yeah. And it's like, oh, you've been here before, haven't yeah. you? Yeah. So it makes me think that I wonder if his character has done this before. He must have. He must have done this before because this seems to be his favorite method of death because he knows all about this. And he knows about the effects of being that buried in sand. He knows the effects of the cold water coming towards you, how you're supposed to catch your breath on the when the waves are receding and you hold it for when they come. And when you're under the water, if you can hold your breath long enough, you'll probably be able to get free because all that water will saturate the sand and then you'll be able to get out. Your way out. But not yeah. if you drown before that, though. So either he's made all of his money being a hitman, or he just has a lot of time on his hand and has given this a lot of thought and is maybe a horror fiction author. It might be, but other than case is this scene of, of these people drowning, you're watching the woman drown, you're watching Ted Dance and Drown. It goes on for a bit, and then eventually we just see this shot, which actually seems unintentionally funny to me when we're looking at Ted Danson's head underwater and he's just kind of looking around and he just has like this really mad, intense look on his face and this red light kind of forms behind his head and his hair is all sticking up because it's floating. Seems really funny to me. And then we're just treated to Leslie Nielsen in a velvet tracksuit. Just lying in bed watching his videotapes. He's got a fucking massive monitor set up going, like all these different TV cameras. His entire home has cameras in it. This was so boring to me as a kid, though. It really, really was because all that, the coolness of this technology, which I, I think is kind of cool now, he's got a rocking pad and oh, he's yeah. maybe a little creepy. Yeah, I like yeah. it. I'm fine with that. I, I, I like it too. But, but back then, I, I, was tot like, I totally agree. Yeah. This was the part of the movie. Once you've seen it, you thought, uh, you know, I'm going to go make a sandwich or I'm going to go to the bathroom. <laughs> I'll be back. Mm -hmm. You don't really care. But this is a story based off of EC comic stuff and or inspired by it. Not based off of it. It's mostly based off of like, well, Stephen King's writing. Yeah. So, but it's all inspired by these types of stories. So if somebody or two people die in a tragic way, let's not think about it. They're coming back. Yeah, the story doesn't end here with Leslie Nielsen watching his videos and being like, ha, 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 I'm such a supervillain. Mm -hmm. Although I kind of would like it if it did, but this extra bit makes it way more comic booky and way more fun for me. And the only part when I was a kid that I liked, enjoyed, remembered, or cared about. So all of a sudden, we get the sense that Leslie Nielsen is not alone. He's about to enjoy a nice evening. He's going to have a shower. And watch videotapes of his maid stealing stuff. He's convinced she's stealing things. So... He is just going to have a good old time, and he's just humming to himself. He's a happy dude. He just killed two people that were bugging him. Yeah. He could not be better. He's single now. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, and he's got that rocking pad, so I kind of feel as though he's kind of on autopilot for picking up Yeah, he's up having ladies. like a Troy McClure moment. He's just sort of hanging out in his With all awesome those fish. Pad. <laughs> With all those fish. Yeah. In his robe. And then he has a shower. I mean, how much more Troy McClure could you get? It's true. Now... All of a sudden, he hears something. He realizes he's not alone. Well, oh, guess what? The two people that he killed are not dead. They are now 
Aqua zombie. For lack of a better term, because there's a lot of zombie going on in this film, mm-hmm. but and these it's are, not like these are water zombies. They died via water. It could be less and Romero. Like it's it, all. It's it's true. You can't not call them zombies. It's true. They. It's a great look to them. I love their fucking look. It, I would like to do um, a Halloween costume. If yeah. ever. It would be great. If they I had ha- to do a zombie, I would like to do an aqua zombie. The, the, the seaweed on them, the bloated pale skin. The watery black blood. Oh my, oh my, that looks so amazing when he shoots them in the head. And as the, uh, and then their waterlogged voices kind of sounds like they're talking underneath the water. Because they're going to do to him what he did to them. Now, he tr- he's first confident because he's got the gun. I'll shoot you dead. And he tries to shoot them. Bullets are having no effect. Not even headshots. Just like this wonderful, like you said, blackish green. Watery, rotten looking black, greenish blood. Yeah. It looks a lot like the kind of shit that you fucking scrape off the wall of your aquarium. Yeah. It looks fantastic. And that does nothing. And so Leslie Nielsen, um, maybe they're more spirits than zombies. Because when he closes the door and locks it with another very small, tiny lock <laughs> you really don't like these small tiny locks I all these cameras the cameras are in place to show somebody busting your door down well i'm just saying is if i feel like if i put my hand against your door and shove with my body weight and i could break the lock i don't think it's very effective i'm pretty sure i could kick my way through that door yeah actually you could probably just push real hard on the bottom and it, the door would bend and the lock would stay intact yeah and I you know. could still just wiggle your way through yeah, the bottom absolutely. of the door because it's made of fucking balsa wood <laughs> yeah but yeah when he's locked and secure and freaking out quite a bit and then they're and, they're just there yeah he turns around and there they are so, so it might be more vengeful spirits which i'm fine with either they look like zombies they behave like ghosts so fine whatever they're ghouls of some kind um, They're so cool looking. I don't uh, care what they are. Yeah, who cares? Yeah. And then just this bit of performance is, I, oh, I just love it so much. Leslie Nielsen turns. It's almost like he wants to unlock the little lock to get out. And he's screaming, horrified. And it kind of turns into this weird laughter. And then scene missing, he's now head uh, buried into the sand up to his head. Still kind of maniacally, hysterically laughing. Because he is convinced he'll survive this. Because he can hold his breath for a long time. Yeah. And he's saying it with just defiance and like maniacal glee. Because I'm getting out of this. And yeah. and, and I just, what a... And it, this was one of those things where it really shows you how you change from a kid to an adult. As a kid, I give a fuck about this. The only thing that me and Terry cared about was the very last scene of I can hold my breath for a long time. But as it was a, surreal. As as an adult, it's become one of my favorite bits in this whole thing. I still wish it started with Ted Dance and having to jump in the hole. I agree. I think that you could have moved the pace along, made it a lot more intense, a lot more interesting, spent more time with him drowning. Because it would be, I liked Leslie Nielsen delivering this very straight, fucked up dialogue while a fucked up thing was happening to a person. It made him seem more evil. And you could have caught the audience up with exposition while they were talking, while he was having to do this thing. If I were the king of the world, this would be happening, yes. You you wouldn't have to, you don't necessarily have to have them meet at a house, take time to drive to the scene that the crime is going to be committed at, and then you're going to... And explain why, I don't care why. Yeah, I agree, like you could have 
it could be tighter, but mm-hmm. as it stands, I like it. I like watching these two actors act. Um, and uh, like Leslie Nielsen's great. Ted Danson is fine. I mean, he's serviceable. It works. Yeah. But I just like Leslie Nielsen's performance so much in this. Me too. Me too. Um, so I'll, I'll, it gets a pass. Yeah. As a kid, though, 20 million times more bored by this. Adult situations and relationships. What? <laughs> now we're getting to what I didn't really like as a kid and i really i still don't really like it as an adult as a kid i loved the beginning because it's so like indiana jones and like treasure seekers and you know ooh, we're in the bottom of the university in the zoological area like all things that i'm into as a kid mm-hmm. and it's underneath the stairs i spent a lot of time under stairs like a little harry potter i was i swear (laughs) and they pull this crate out and it's all like it's all very mysterious and i'm like hoping there's gonna be a mummy in there or something because like that's all super cool to me and then it goes into like adult situations and relationships i know that's kryptonite to you and i will say that one of the most offbeat funny moments so we're basically introduced to a guy who is having problems with his wife. And it's almost as if you could think of uh, a cartoon stereotype of a guy afraid of his wife. His wife would be, what, chasing him around? And... Kind of Cruella Deville and Cru- this little yeah. sniveling, yes, dear. Mm, yes, dear. Yeah. I'm too Thank oh, you. I'm too dear. See, you should do cartoon voices. I should do cartoon voices. Putting that out there, Malcolm Gladwell's a secret. I would love to do that. So this guy is sitting there. His wife is berating him in front of all these, I guess, it's like a wedding it's a wedding party or some kind of a party, an outdoor thing. Yeah, I'm not sure. It seems to be some sort of function. It's a lot of university people, so I don't know if it's a wedding. It very well could be. And I wasn't paying attention because like weddings and stuff bore the fucking shit out of me. This is Hal Holbrook from The Fog. It is. It is. Um, his wife is giving him a hard time and he pulls out a gun. And just... William tells her right in the fucking head. Right between the eyes. And it's so funny. I almost thought, when I was watching this scene now, man, it strikes me as those weird thoughts you'd have at family gatherings or social functions where you think to yourself, what would happen if I just walked over there and punched him in the mouth in front of everybody? Yeah. What would they say? What would they do? Or if if I thought to myself, what if I went over to that dinner table and just flipped the whole thing? fucking thing just grab that table and flipped it i have these thoughts a lot i know other people do too so i'm not crazy i don't think but i'll just stare at you silently oh my god lydia drowning don't be a life preserver no oh my god but it is very like you can it's very relatable especially because she's this mouthy snarky fucking aggressive drunk bitch the sort of person i fucking hate and this is the sort of person where when me and wes go out in public i often threaten to stab in the fucking temple out loud i don't think these things uh i believe one time you loudly said jesus christ i'll slit your fucking throat I can't even apologize. <laughs> These people drag this shit out of me. I mean, that this is how they're behaving in public around other people, and they're affecting other people's lives while being in calm fucking dispositions by being these 
mouthy fucking this is why i really dislike this this trend of women to be aggressive and sarcastic to be a sarcastic person which makes no fucking sense grammatically but they have high levels of snark snark i see that a lot on tinder i see that a lot fucking everywhere and i'll threaten to cut its throat <laughs> anyway so he just about shoots his wife in like he, he shoots his he, wife he shoots in the head figuratively yeah, in a daydream in, in sequence his, in his daydream <laughs> sequence best reaction ever everyone stops stunned looks at her body and then they look at him Golf and they all start sleeping it's like heck of a shot and a, and the woman's just like right between the eyes and and he's like like he just has like this look of like oh shucks you guys <laughs> And then cut to, oh, it's a daydream. He didn't actually shoot his wife. He just wants to. And she's still like, why are you still standing there? What would you do without me? You'd be lost without me. And he's just like, I don't know, dear. Simpering sad sack. Yeah, I know. That was my name in high school. Uh, Anyways. uh, Back to the crate. Who gives a shit about human beings? There's this crate underneath the stairs from an Arctic expedition of 1834. If you think that this is some sort of like homage to the thing, you're probably right. You're probably right. Although, what the holy fuck? I've never been as a kid. I was disappointed in what's in the crate. As an adult, I'm disappointed about the name on it is Julia Carpenter. I even thought that was as cool as a kid. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't catch that. Oh man, I wanted there to be something way more cool in the crate too. I will admit. He has another daydream. (laughs) Of <laughs> him strangling his wife with his tie. I wish he would have strangled his wife. The whole time she's berating him and seeming rather fed up because he wants to have his friend over, play a game of chess and hang out. And what can he do? But she's going that way. She doesn't want anything to do with it. And while she's berating him, he imagines he's going to strangle her with a tie, but instead he doesn't. And again, she does the line of, what would you do without me? Where would you be without me? I don't even know. And she just rolls her eyes at him and gets the fuck out of there. Meanwhile, his friend that he's interested in hanging out with, just like bros do, is opening up this crate. He feels safe, I suppose justified. Now, the date on the crate is 1834. He's got a janitor helping him. The janitor seems a little wary because something moved inside of it. He swears something moved inside of it, but they're Uh, both convinced that it's probably just like rotten plants dried up to a husk now. It can't be anything alive. That crate has been sitting there. For over a hundred years. What could possibly... Over 150 years. Like, what could possibly be inside that's alive? Nothing that makes sense to them. And let me tell you, nothing that makes sense to me. <laughs> Not at all. Especially when we see just how energetic what it is, is. It's a fucking ape. It's an ape. It's a fucking ape with super sharp teeth. It kind of looks like it might be a baboon of some kind. Yeah. It's hard to say. I'm not a zoologist. A white ape. Yeah, it's something weird. It's an ape. It's a it's a primate of some kind with super sharp critters like mouths mm-hmm. and a lot like critters. And it just eats the custodian wholesale. Like he just bites his arm, and the guy. It's weird because there's this moment where his arm is bit inside the box, and I kept thinking of Jurassic Park, like shooter, shooter, but they don't. And then the box tips over, and the custodian just sort of lies there. With his arm, and he's in a daze. I don't know if he's going into shock. I think it is. He might be having a heart attack, too. It, it's you know? it's hard to say, but he doesn't really seem to be feeling the pain anymore, and he doesn't seem to be struggling anymore. His arm is got by something, and then you see the hands crawl this guy up, and I guess just eat this whole man. This, like, look, look, look. 
if you're trying to tell me that some fucking stupid ape is in this box with no light and nothing to eat for over 150 years. That he's hungry? Yes, that it's hungry, that is going to eat a whole man. I don't know. They even allude to this later on that he's eaten three people. Yeah, because he eventually gets to eating three people. Yeah. So, and they're not quite sure how. They're just like, I don't know how, but he's got to weigh a lot because he's just eating three people. Yeah. That's crazy. But yeah, he eats everything. Every, like, there's nothing left of the guy except a shoe by the time he's done. Yeah. The professor kind of freaks out and goes scrambling upstairs, obviously freaked out because there's this, like, man-eating beast mm-hmm. now in this crate. And he finds another professor of some sort or a student or a TA of some sort. Yeah, he seemed almost like a student. He's trying to convince him that something has gone on in this laboratory. But this guy doesn't believe him because it sounds fucking crazy. Yeah, but he's like, I'll I'll entertain you because you're obviously freaked out and there's blood all over. So, like, we'll go down there and investigate. This creature has dragged its crate back under the stairwell where it feels safe. Mm -hmm. Where it felt safe all this time. And there's a big trail of blood to prove it. Mm -hmm. So his little buddy that he's gathered is convinced there's something going on here. There's definitely something going on. So they get the flashlight and they creep in. Like a jack-in-the-box, the the thing fucking just flies out. Yeah. Kills that motherfucker. Bites his face off. It's actually a really good effect. I liked it a lot. It is the most gory. And it struck me that, like, while this wasn't my favorite as a kid, the Mm -hmm. beginning did creep me out, but then it got into all this boring grown-up relationship stuff. Um, it was probably the only time I snapped to any attention was when this guy's getting his face raked and his throat uh, gash open. I agree. This one is a real slow bubble, I find. Mm-hmm. I find that there's too many scenes with this guy interacting with his wife. It's paid off. You understand why they've uh, pulled the taffy on those scenes. You get it. Now the... as an adult, yeah, and I'm far more interested in it because she is incorrigible and a hater. Yeah, but I mean, as a kid, this is a long movie anyways. By the time you're getting to this point, and, I, and you just had that Tide story as a kid. This is actually becomes a tougher set, I think, yeah. because the, the middle part is a lot slower. I, I said I had a funny plant guy. I had a, a zombie cadaver running around Father's Day cake and all that kind of stuff. That's funny. It has my attention. It's fun. I was like, the, the, the middle story, I like as an adult, but as a kid, I didn't care. And then this story, I'm just like, it's an ape. It's not cool to me. It could. Why not make it like a gremlin or like a homunculus of some kind? I don't know. But at least that would could explain why it's still alive. A giant shit monster. Fine, a giant shit monster. I like I like fecal homunculi. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whatever. Like something to be okay. This is an immortal thing. I get it. But I, but this is just this is just a, a an either an immortal or a very long lived. A type of ape that is carnivorous and maybe every 20 years or so somebody discovers this fucking crate opens it up gets eaten and then nails it back someone else nails it back shut and shoves it back under there well, maybe he's like a cicada of the ape world yeah. where he just stays dormant for like 20 years at a time comes out eats something and goes back for hibernation yeah that could that could explain its longevity that or it just is supernatural white ape I think we're just spending way way more thought than they ever did on this fucking ape because they're just like, whatever, it's a thing. I'm surprised that it didn't stick with me so much as a kid because it's those things that kids like. It's like um, this sneaky sort of like almost cloak and daggery thing. It's got uh, William Tell sort of daydreams, which kids often have a little more adult and nefarious daydreams. And it's got that, you know, Indiana Jones sort of feel at the beginning. 
and this monster, this mm-hmm. creature. It's kind of all the things that kids like. And the way that it's filmed is not necessarily cartoonish. It's the one that's least involved in the cartoon world or the comic world, I find. But the lighting is amazing. Very almost giallo with the reds and the blues. And watching it now, I thought, you know, the first photography lights that I ever bought were red and blue. And I wonder if this film entirely and this sequence specifically had influenced that at all. Because it's very, very colorful for such a plain story. And yeah, set so far into the anthology that it's nearly forgettable, especially for a kid. I think it did have more influence and sticking power than I ever thought. And the crate itself holds all sorts of mystique. Um, according to Wikipedia, Greg Nicotero owns two of the three prop crates and good on him. Oh, really? Yeah. I would love one as like a coffee table. (laughs) That'd actually be pretty fun. Yeah. Because the crate itself, not necessarily the crate story, but the, Mm -hmm. the crate itself and the introduction to the crate and maybe the final scenes of the crate had far more sticking power than I would have admitted. They call it the monster problem in horror where... If it's a horror movie that has a monster in it and you are pulling the taffy on that monster reveal, no matter what the monster looks like, no matter what it is, it is going to disappoint uh, a portion of the audience who thought it was going to be something scarier. And so you're right. The the crate itself is where the mystique and the power lies in the story. Yeah. But once you see what's in the crate, if you're not into big mean ape, then you don't care. And I, as a kid, it didn't capture my imagination as much as the idea of the crate did. And then as an adult, I'm like, I still don't care about this ape. I want it to be a cooler monster. They had fun, sure, with the effects in this one and the puppeteering yeah, and yeah. all of that stuff. Oh, the, the creature looks great. It's not that. Yeah, it's but just, I don't... they could have gotten away without having any of the actual reveal and shown just the creature's arms and the trails of blood and the bodies being pulled into the crate the eyes they could have left the those eyes. eye shots oh, in sure. that would have been fine because then my brain would say well what is it it's some kind of a mammal but i don't know what it is like it's it's hairy is it is it like a is it like a yeti or something or whatever you want it exactly you could do something like that instead of like no 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 this is so kind of looks like a baboon with a really sharp mouth which is saying something because baboons have very mean looking teeth now the professor goes to goes to Northrop's place and is completely. Two people have died. Oh my God, they've been eaten. Now he sees this as the perfect opportunity. <laughs> He's gonna feed his wife to that stupid thing. So he drugs his friend. He drug, like like you would. Like he drugs he drugs his friend, and then he writes this cock and bull story. And it's so long. She just pours herself a drink to read it for crying out loud. The grossest fucking drink. In the world. I don't understand. And then she pulls a Julian and takes it with her in the car. Which it's is so stupid. random. She pours, listeners, she pours milk. A giant glass of milk. A giant glass of milk. Wholesome milk. And then takes like, rum or bourbon or something and pours that into the drink. Would it not curdle? Isn't that what there, you call a cement mixer? There are... There are um, alcohol- like a white Russian. Yeah. There, so there are alcoholic beverages that you put milk in. To me... They're disgusting. I hate creamy, like, cocktails. And I like cocktails. I remember throwing up um, a half of a two-liter bottle of Barbarian Cooler, if you remember Barbarian Cooler. Oh, it's so gross. It's like a purple. It's like the commercial equivalent to purple drink. (laughs) 
<laughs> and um, probably six beer. I think I was eight, an 18 or 19 at this time. Ooh, party, Lydia. Um, a half bottle of champagne and three white Russians. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was awesome. It was basically seven buckets worth of pink foam is what I was throwing up the next day. I was going to say, it was probably going to look like the blood from the movie Clown just coming out of your mouth. Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. And it went on for hours, and I owned a waterbed at the time, so it was just all oh my God. combination. It was gross. It was so gross. I gave up entirely on trying to puke into anything, and I just threw up all over my floor for about six hours. It was, it was great. It sounds pretty punk rock. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm glad and sad at the same time. Is there a word for that, being happy and disappointed at the same time for not knowing this version of you? Numb. I don't know. I can't think of a word either. Impressed. Oh, yeah, that's it. But that's drinking milk with any fucking brown booze in it. And then she, like you said, takes it in the car with her and she's just driving. Because he wants her to go to the university because his friend has had a lot of salacious relationships with some young female students. And he brought one to the university under false pretenses and... Well, things got out of hand, and now she's scared and huddled in a corner, and we need you to come and talk the situation down, because you always know what to do. Yeah, you're so good with these things. Yeah, and like you say, I'd be lost without you. And she's just reading that, like, like she's so into reading this fucking story. Yeah. And so, of course, she's going to take her disgusting, uh, poisonous milk, and she's going to drive to the university... And all the while, he is going to mop up all the blood everywhere so he can, I guess, hide the story. And He does a bang-up job, because mopping up blood is not easy. I could say that it looks fucking difficult based on the opening shots of him just putting the mop down into the blood smears and then moving it around. And it looks just like the worst thing ever. It's like, that's never coming out. Like, it looks like it's just smearing it forever. Almost like endlessly trying to brush up dust in a dustpan and there's always that line of dirt every time you fucking move it. No if matter you don't what. know what you're doing. Yeah. But yeah, same with mopping things up if you don't know what you're doing. I hate people that say like mopping is just like pushing dirt around and I'm thinking, if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. But <clears throat> what he should have been doing is gathering it with a with a sponge first. But he does have a sponge. So he, he does a good job. So he definitely knows what he's doing. He gets it clean, clean to the point that you could walk down there, like his wife does, and not know that two people have just been slaughtered all over the floor. It's true. Now, he tries to get her to go underneath the stairs. She's taking her sweet-ass time. He loses his temper, and then... <laughs> and she's getting into this, almost like a crime comic. She's uh, like, how bad is she? Yeah, she really wants to know. And then, so, when he gets down there, the ape is not reacting the way he thought it would. It's not jumping up and just eating her it's taking its sweet ass time and he's really like he's banging her against the box itself and the ape is not coming out and he's screaming wake up wake up wake up yeah and she's just looking at him shocked and then the second he's done he she just starts wailing on him with her purse like what the hell's the matter with you it's like you're gonna be wearing your balls as earrings uh just all this stuff and then like that evil jack-in-the-box he is the ape pops up eats her and he's pretty happy about it. He finally, he, like, and then the ape's in there. I guess 
I was like, why does the ape like being that box so much? Like, it it's c- his den. It's his kennel. He's kennel. He's kennel trained. I suppose, but he, and now he's eating three people, so he's got to be full. He got to be full. You ate three people. No, and, he sort of fights against being locked back in there. Well, maybe the idea of wait a second, if you turn, turn that padlock on, then I can't get out and eat any people anymore. I don't want people now, but I'm going to want people later. Another 150 years. I know. I don't know. Yeah. So. Now the determination is what to do with this fucking box. Well, I guess you just throw it into throw a, it in the quarry. Throw it in the quarry. What quarries are for? What are quarries for? If not throwing in bodies, boxes, crates, things you don't want, things you don't want other people to find. Mm-hmm. So he goes back and talks to his friend. Like, what are we gonna do? I, his his professor friend, like, is he's not responsible. How could he possibly know? He opened the crate, but he's not responsible for any of those deaths. No, not at all. So he easily could have called the cops, and it's not like that guy has them. By the ass saying, oh, well, you know, you're involved in this too. No, he's not. I mean, he opened the crate, but how could he possibly know that this ape was inside of it? Well, what's he going to, like, he's going to turn in his friend. He even says himself, what are friends for? He's got his friends back. And you got to know that watching somebody trapped in a horrible relationship with a vile battle axe of a bitch like her, he's got to feel some measure of relief. Having his friend, his best friend, be free of that ball and chain. Yeah. What are friends for? I guess playing chess forever. Unless the ape comes out of its watery grave and seeks its revenge. I don't think the ape is brainy uh, th- enough th- to seek revenge. That's the thing. I was I, I was thinking to myself. It's someone else's problem That now. is definitely somebody else's problem. I was like, well, the ape's going to track them down? D- d- like, I don't even know if an ape is good at tracking people over long distances. He drove that ape to wherever the fuck he was you know what i'm saying yeah and the apes in a quarry probably has way more things to fucking worry about and he'll probably just eat the first thing he sees battery's like a little tiny dog that gets stranded when its owners move and then it somehow makes a cross-country flight to return home to its owners or cats that will you know walk 75 kilometers across a town Mm. to go back to their old home from their new foster place there was a dog like that that we called the o-train bridge husky that revolted against his new foster owners and decided to live under the old train bridge. It was really cute. Having a husky sleep there under a bridge for the winter. It's like a troll, but way cuter. Um, those sort of animals have those homing instincts. So maybe the ape ended up back under the stairwell. Sauce crate. Just laying in wait to munch on any co-ed that happened by. Yeah. I like that version of the story. It's not a bad version of the story. All we're left with, though, is that the fact that the crate is busted open underwater and we see the eyes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then on to the final tale in this creep show. The most boring, yet least forgettable, and one of it was probably my runner-up for favorite as a kid. I liked it a lot as a kid, Well, probably too. third favorite, because I really did like Father's Day. Jordi Verrill got the number one spot, and this one sits at... Sat at number three. It's probably now my second favorite. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot. I think that uh, the the old guy is playing a very cartoonish character, almost as cartoonish as Stephen King's character, but not as it doesn't obviously have some of the trappings of oh, good guy, I'm doing a country bumpkin. Like he's not doing that, but he's basically just doing like a Scrooge McDuck, Daddy Warbucks. Way more swears though. Oh. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of swears. And that's what caught me not off guard, because I like swears. Just like the next bitch. Mm-hmm. But from the beginning of Creep Show, there is swears. 
It's very curse laden. This last segment, though, is like fucking, yeah, Scrooge McDuck meets Stifler. Yeah. Um, and he's kind of doing like a Howard Hughes thing. He's very compulsive, very clean. He's wearing gloves. He's got spray cans, everything in his apartment. Uh, apartment, that's uh, condo, I guess it would be, is stark white. He's got a lot of uh, telephones everywhere so he can call people and yell at them. Uh, He's got he... a stock ticker on continuously. He's got his, like, foos tube for fucking effluence and napkins. Oh, yeah. A surgical mask that he can blow down there. And he's also got something that's pretty peculiar. Got a bit of a roach problem. Bugs. You can't get rid of them once they get in. Mm -hmm. Breed in the crevices, crawl spaces. Very core of the building itself. I'm not too freaked out by bugs, but I feel bad for people that are. I'm not freaked out by bugs either. But this is a lot of bugs. I was wondering when I was watching this, Are do you think they got away with not killing any of those cockroaches? I don't know, but my favorite part is when he does mash his fist down on one and he picks his hand back up and looks at his white glove and there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, okay, not only is this probably a figment of his imagination, um, or is it? Or it's, it's so... This is... It's ambiguous it's entirely. It's so fucking ambiguous. But... Mr. White, the maintenance man, mm-hmm. seems to be convinced that it's all in his head, and he's definitely talking down to him. In Any his best more way. bugs in there? What's wrong, Mr. Pratt? Bugs got your tongue. Yeah, the way he's talking to him would be the way that you were talking to like an invalid or something, and it makes me wonder. Or a crazy person. A crazy person, just somebody that. Well, the you... way an asshole talks to a crazy. Oh, person. for sure, and. Apparently, this guy is a very rich guy. You know, he owns stocks and companies, and and he's a very important man within the city. And he's just chasing around one roach, and then oh, Jesus, another roach, and oh, Jesus, another roach. There's really not much to this story. He seems to be a very money grubbing, mean guy. Uh, one of his employees, not of employees, he did a, a hostile takeover of a company, and one of the old heads of that company had committed suicide. His wife had found the number to him and called him to berate him over the phone and say he was a horrible person and I hope you get the worst type of cancer, yada, yada, yada. And he's just like, well, at least I won't have to give him a seat on the board of directors. Yep. And he's he's very callous. He doesn't really give a shit. And he's actually kind of, oh, he killed himself. That's convenient for me. Mm-hmm. So the whole time he's trying to deal with these bugs, it basically hits a breaking point when he wants to call an exterminator because it's more than one or two bugs. He's making his food and there ends up being a bit of roach in the food that he had made, cereal, I guess, or oatmeal. I guess he likes to have his insides as clean as his outsides because he's blenderizing oat bran. It's so strange, but... Love this guy. (laughs) A man after your own heart. Well, the bugs in his food is pretty fucked up. When my... Mother had first, and the only time that she bought us um, Fruity Pebbles, I guess that's a counterpart to, well, those Count Choculas and stuff like that. Well, Count Chocula is specifically part of the General Mills Monster Cereal line, but the Fruity Pebbles was, it's kind of like Tricks. Is that what it's supposed to be, Tricks? It's it's very similar. Well, no, let's be clear. Fruity Pebbles, 
are not exactly like tricks, but they're the closest uh, type of cereal that I think are similar to each other. So we didn't like sweet cereals very much. We didn't get sweet cereals very often at all. We didn't really get cereals. My parents like to make actual food. Okay. Um, but once every couple months, we'd get uh, honeycomb or not? Yeah, honeycomb or sugar crisp. Mm-hmm. One of those two, which are a little more healthy as far as like I'd never tasted Captain Crunch and things like that till I was well over nineteen years old because that just wasn't in our house. But once in a rare while, and then the monster cereals came out. So my parents mm-hmm. would buy a Count Chocula and Frankenberry, and Booberry Fruit Brute. It was Booberry. Booberry Fruit Brute and Yummy Mummy were the other ones. I'd never had Yummy Mummy, but it was Count Chocula usually, mm-hmm. um, if ever at all, right? But this one time, she bought Fruity Pebbles, and we were all like, "What is this shit?" Because it is like tricks, and it's like super high-powered sugar. I yeah. found Count Chocula wasn't as sugary as mm-hmm. all those sugary cereals. Um, we didn't like this Fruity Pebbles at all. I think we each had one bowl, and it was just too sugary and too gross, and it wasn't Count Chocula, so who gives a fuck? And the second time she pulled it out of the cupboard, it was full of ants, and we were happy because <laughs> we didn't have to eat this shit. And she was convinced that the Fruity Pebbles had brought the ants into the house. So no more Fruity Pebbles. We had an we had an ant problem when we were kids, too, and I distinctly remember it was a bowl of uh, Fruit Loops that I think uh, I we poured out... And there was just all these big black ants in it. And I just remember my grandma just like tapping them all with her thumb. None of them got away. She was just like, douche, Yeah, don't douche, want those in the house. Douche, douche, just crushing them. They get we, in the crevices. Yeah, uh, we had a really bad ant problem. I remember one summer distinctly. We were just loaded with ants. Loaded with ants. And I don't really know. We Sometimes we would get ants here and there over the years in my house. We lived in the suburbs. But I mean... We would have, yeah, occasionally we'd have ant problems. But one summer, I remember specifically that we had just fucking the worst ant problem ever. And it was in our food like this. Yeah. And you had to be so careful about leaving anything and making sure you were cleaning everything up. And then making sure that, I don't know if, if we eventually found the a nest or if we got an exterminator or I don't know what happened, but the, we got rid of the ant problem. Wintertime rolled around and then yeah. the ants yeah. just froze to death and that was the end of it. But it was bad. It was so bad. Is that image of him pouring out the cereal mm-hmm. after he's found it in his bowl of mushed up, whizzed up cereal mm-hmm. that I was like, oh my God, yeah. Because so many people have had that exact problem, be it at home with an ant problem uh, at a cottage or oh, yeah. God knows what. Yeah. Buying fucking shitty cereal at a sketchy mart. I don't know. Whatever the scenario is. But many people have had that exact same thing with breakfast cereals. So fuck breakfast cereals. Fuck breakfast. So there's no real like music in this segment that I recall whatsoever. The lighting is extremely stark. We've moved away from this gothic ambience. We've moved away from the sci-fi colorful theremin music. We've moved away from orchestral score, synth score, bright colors, like that Argento influence lighting. We've moved away from all these different segments of this comic book to something that is very minimalist. It's very minimalist. Music, there are music in the scenes. It's provided by the jukebox. So you're getting a lot of a big band and classic fifties uh, type music. Yeah, like so energetic sound and like um, the bug sounds, the yeah. weird synth sounds, and that skittering, scuttling, mm-hmm. chirpy little sound that the bugs are apparently making. And I can't think of a better example of the whole 
something is clean. This is a person that's obsessed with clean. Cockroaches to people are, to a lot of people, the embodiments of filth and disease and and uh, poverty because they're infesting poorer buildings. Uh, almost the same thing as, you know, people can get wigged out by flies and maggots because that's death and decay um, and awful smells. That's why I don't like flies uh, or maggots. <laughs> but... <laughs> Maggots are, are nature's dust busters. No. They're nature's icky pickies. I don't fucking like them. No. I don't really like them per se, but nope. I don't dislike nope. them. Nope. A pox. They're probably the antidote to the pox. A pox. A pox, you say. Blech. Blech. Wow. I have a horrible maggot story that my dad told me to go take out the garbage and I was like, sure thing, Pop. And I went to go take out the garbage. And it, the, we kept the garbage in the uh, garage before we took it out to the curb, like a lot of people. The light bulb in the garage was burnt out, so the whole place was dark. But I was like, oh, fiddle-dee-dee, the garage door will handle this. So I open up the garage door so the moonlight can get in and the street lights. Mmm, ambient. And so I grab the garbage bag and I take it and I'm sort of walking to the curb. And the whole and I'm, it's like the garbage bag was cold and it was mushy, and it was squirmy, and in about the span of maybe 10 seconds, I was thinking to myself, what is that, spaghetti or something? And I drop the bag, and I bring my hand up to the light that's being illuminated by the streetlights and the moon, and my hand is absolutely covered in fucking maggots. The sound I made, Lydia... I could never reproduce. It was not unlike a tiny girl with her arm caught in a bear trap. Maybe. I had nothing short of a full-on meltdown. <laughs> and I had never... I was always grossed out by maggots. You see, like, a, a dead thing on the ground, and you flip it over with a stick because you're a kid, and that's what you do. And then there's maggots. You're like, ew, maggots. But having these maggots on my hand, Lydia, oh, my God. And so I ran back into the house, pale as a sheet, and I started, oh, before that, I, like, shook my hand off, made sure all the maggots were off, like, did, like, the whole, like, heebie-jeebie thing. And then I just become, like, Michael Flatley, Lord of the Dance, I'm river dancing and all the fucking maggots and crushing every single last one of them. And then I fucking run in the house, and I'm like, oh, my God, Dad, I can't, I can't. And he's like, what's wrong? He's like, maggots. And that's all I had to say, because apparently my dad had a problem with maggots, too. And so, he's, so he said, okay, don't worry about it, I'll do it. And so my dad very bravely, like, took the garbage out for me. But then from that day on, I never took out the garbage without the fucking 34-point inspection to make sure there was no maggots on it. You know, you can it. spray raid on maggots and it kills them just like a bug. Michael Flatley's Lord of the Dance. Lord of the Flies. <laughs> That's what you were. I'm sorry. I wish the listeners could see me on the edge of my seat with like great big eyes like a little tiny kid hearing the best bedtime story ever. Hands clasped at my breast in glee. <laughs> ah. I'm so sorry you had a bad maggot problem, Wes. Thank you. That's all I want in life. So anyway, this guy's got a fucking roach problem. Let me tell you something about this dude and this story. It isn't clear if it's going on in his mind or not because it seems to be one or two cockroaches like that. I could see that. I could see that. Like, all right, you have a, a roach problem. But they just start pouring there's hundreds and thousands of them other fucking things and people like, are talking to him like oh you got a bug problem eh they don't and and he's trying to get exterminators over and they're just 
like uh, how many roaches would it take to fill the sink to the brim? I don't even know. Yeah, where do they get all these roaches? And they're all I, shapes and sizes too. There's different bugs th- in amongst that's, there. That's true. Like yeah. they're not all the same type of cockroach. I don't even sure if they're all roaches. I see there was like I there's saw water bugs, locusts. There's all kinds of fucking mixed up bugs. It was fucking disgusting. I love it. Um, no June bugs, though. No June bugs. Yeah. Let me tell you. So, like, do I have a problem with roaches and bugs? No. Do I have problems with thousands of them piling all on top of each other, just scurrying everywhere? Yes. Apparently, there's a bus station on the other side of town that gets swarmed by praying mantis, and I want to see it so bad. Because I come from a, a place on a, a shallow lake, North mm-hmm. Bay, and there's other cities that have this problem, usually on the bay of a shallow lake. Mm-hmm. A, he- a healthy shallow lake. Mm-hmm. Um, mayflies or shadflies yeah. swarm like that. And they will be like inches thick on things. And you they cause car accidents because their dying bodies are so slick on the roads that when you drive and your, your car wheels get covered in the goo that is thousands of fucking crushed bugs, you slam on the brakes and your car is going to slide just like a sheet of ice. It's great. There's videos of me on my Instagram walking through the crunchy bugs. It's funny. So I'm not like as squicked out as I should be. And I'm not, I don't really usually have a problem with bugs. House centipedes, yes. Just because I hate them. Are those giant silverfish things here? Um, yeah, not that scared those, about them. Those, uh, we used to get those in my basement. Yeah. And I used to watch TV in my basement. So in the middle of the night, like I'd be sitting there watching TV and I would just see like a big ass one like scurry across the floor. I'd be like, Wah! and I'd jump on it's it. It's like a land leech. I'd destroy it. That's hilarious. Uh, so it doesn't really creep me out or anything like that. But this is specifically designed to creep out people who oh. are fucking freaked out by bugs, right? Absolutely. And this character who... Those people that can't even watch Joe's Apartment. Have you ever seen that I've film? seen that flick. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of similar, except that he makes friends with the bugs. Yeah. What a dumb movie. Uh, <laughs> anyway. It's funny. Wow. But yeah. So Mr. Pratt is freaking the fuck out. And there are hundreds of thousands of these goddamn things. And then just to make it even better... There's a power outage. Yeah. And he's got emergency power. He's got like this vaguely sci-fi, not too distant future penthouse thing going on where he's got emergency power buttons and and all these phones in every room. And he's got like a sealed room that he can hide in. Yeah, it's almost like a panic room. Yeah, it's really, really weird. Or it's a vault. Because when you're looking at his apartment, it's completely absolutely overrun and he doesn't have this attitude where i'm gonna kill all you damn cockroaches because honestly i guess fucking just start river dancing man well now he's like in his panic room so he's like you're not gonna get in here yeah and i'll just wait for the power out of show because now the exterminators like <laughs> exterminators coming in there like oh my god yeah. uh they're not gonna be able to do anything but oh shit underneath the bed in the panic room is just a bed of all of these bugs and you don't really know what's happening. He's just kind of like, ah, and then he. Yeah, then they they pan out to the apartment, and all is quiet, and all is still. The power's back on across the city and in the apartment, and there's not a bug to be found. Not a bug to be found. There's evidence of his meandering around. They show his cereal that he spilt everywhere. His can of bug spray. His can of bug spray on its side, and they show him lying in the panic room, dead. But what could have possibly killed him? Well, guess what? He mm. is riddled with these fucking insects. His skin starts His skin moving. Very starts alien bubbling. chest burster. And then just all of these bugs just burst out of his mouth. 
out of his chest. They just erupt. And then as the the, the doorman or the I guess the building maintenance yeah, guy Mr. White Mr. White is is sort of mocking him, like, hey, is there any bugs got your tongue? What's going on over there? You go back to the panic room and it is filled halfway with just roaches. What was so what's happening? What's happening? Do you have any ideas? The roaches had their comeuppance. They're like the Borg, right? Mm-hmm. And they have this hive mind and that he killed one of them in a menacing manner and they've all come to get their revenge. Do you think it's his own compulsive nature in his mind doing these things and he died of a... Like if you're the person that doesn't like talking to people and you're the person that everyone's going to come and ask for the time at the bus stop, that sort of magnet that he's become? Maybe. I also think that it is in his mind. But after I would I I would agree with you 100% and that definitely seems to be what they're demonstrating. Yeah. Because where would all these bugs come from? They wouldn't. The, the, you're, the, <laughs> yeah. like, you cannot have this much of a bug problem. Unless in... he's like the reluctant willard of bugs. <laughs> Maybe. But then after he's dead, what's the point of all those bugs bursting out of him? What's that? Who's that hallucination for? Is it just us? Because that's confusing. Maybe he still had a spark of life. And that's how he ultimately went in his mind. I don't know. It is it is ambiguous, and I like it. I like that. It's I, I like the story. Yeah. And look, the idea of all those bugs inside of him bursting out—it's super gross. And the only thing that hinges on the fact that it is all a delusion for me is that whenever he kills bugs, there's no bug remnants. That's true. That's the only thing. There's no bug remnants, and honestly, how would every single bug that was in that apartment get into that so-called sealed room? Why were they already in there? How could there be so many bugs in there? Cockroaches and insects do not behave that way in which they would work together. To Unless go... they're alien bugs. This is like maximum overdrive for bugs. It's... This is Stephen King. It is Stephen King. I think the idea is, honestly, bugs are gross. Let's just do this. Yeah, this is designed specifically to freak out people who are afraid of bugs. And this would be a fucking nightmare to people who have a problem with bugs. This the whole thing is designed, the whole film is designed for people who love fucking comic books. And this is all just amazing comic books come to life. Absolutely. Are there any other horrors? Like, there are horror anthologies, yes, with, like, comic-y almost wraparounds or fairy tale wraparounds. Mm-hmm. Tales from the Dark Side comes to mind. Mm-hmm. But are yeah, there any other from... horrors that are so comic book like this? Aside from ones that are taking a lot of visual cues from comic books, like Return of the Living Dead, um, that's a very comic book that has uh, even like the art that they end up using for the movie and stuff like that is very comic book. So I give it to that. Um, I found Hellmouth, a recent Hellmouth that I borrowed from you. Thank you for that. Oh, actually. yeah, you're welcome. I, I enjoyed that very, very much. That's I found cool, that right? Very comic aesthetic. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. But nothing quite nothing, uses, nothing, like, the panels, that's the, the thing. lettering, no, the yeah. color schemes, yeah. even, the tonal shift. Yeah, even the movies based off of other EC Comics properties, the Tales from the Crypt movie, not not Bordello of Blood and not Demon Knight, but the 1970s mm-hmm. Tales from the Crypt that doesn't even have the Crypt Keeper in it, because remember, that was a, a, a creation of HBO, not... A, a, like well, that iteration of the Crypt Keeper um, and even the Vault of Horror another thing based off of the EC Comics that doesn't really this this one Creepshow is meant to be a, a, 
an, a complete and utter homage to horror comics from the 1950s. And so Romero, who has made a career out of homaging movies that he loved as a kid, things that he loved as a kid, and bringing it into what would that then be the modern era. Mm-hmm. So it's so deliberate and so specifically comic book. And, and covered with writers and special effects artists and actors, probably, who were all that influenced as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a yeah. real melting pot and truly is comic books come to life. Horror comics specifically come to oh, life, yeah. unlike any other oh, yeah. film. And kind of unlike, even though we have our ups and downs and our opinions have changed with age, mm-hmm. it is really the tightest anthology Mm-hmm. And sure, it's dated. There's things that don't really age well. Specific things like to do with technology and things like that. Absolutely. But but I think as a whole, I think much like the EC Comics and even uh, the the other uh, horror comics, I think that the stories. If you read those stories now, if you go back and you read a Tales from the Crypt or a Vault of Horror uh, comic book, those stories still hold up. Those stories are still relevant because they're simple morality tales they are situations about love and betrayal uh greed corruption um revenge revenge these are these are universal concepts that as long as humanity's around these stories will be relevant i think yes you'll look at well they're all kind of wearing suits and the women and the men have hats and oh that's kind of weird like look at the cars they're driving so yes there are going to be things that are going to allow you to identify when and where this was probably written or drawn or in this case filmed but i think what keeps creep show relevant and why it has such a strong cult following is the fact that the stories still absolutely work you can remake this movie beat for beat change things to iphones make things digital the guy like whatever you want to do Mm-hmm. And and do the exact same stories, and people won't think that the stories themselves are dated. Yeah. If not, the aesthetic might be a little dated. No, that's exactly true. Their tropes, their archetypes, and there's nothing new under the sun as far as mm-hmm. storytelling goes when done. And guess what? Even the framing device, a straight-laced person thinking that horror is evil and bad and it's going to corrupt his kid. That never goes out of style. That doesn't fucking go to, go to style. And I think maybe that's why so many people respond to it. And it's crazy to think that, you know, public comic book burning seems so long ago. But it wasn't that long ago. And, you know, uh, heavy metal and punk music and, uh, you know, Satanic Panic of the 1980s, that wasn't that long ago either. No, people and, were still, they were burning Harry Potter books not yeah, that long ago. Yeah, burning Harry Potter books. I, I mean, like, people are freaking out over the fact that Neil Gaiman named a book Trigger Warning. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. people are still trying to ban things, still claiming that these visual aids and entertainment devices will corrupt the morals of the youth let alone of free thinking fucking adults i i experienced it um personally not personal well like i experienced it like firsthand when i was in high school and the columbine shootings happened and people like you were hearing nothing from adults but Take oh, you listen to KMFDM and Marilyn Manson? Oh, yeah. Take away their music. Take away their movies. I would read articles like in entertainment magazines and, and, and like, uh, like think the Matrix came out and they're like, oh, look at this. Problem got to shoot it, right? And that's, and, and they're saying, see, this is exactly where they're getting this all from. And it's like blaming. Catch you playing Doom? Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I know. So. So and and that's where people started looking at you funny as a person who wanted to who liked this type of stuff who was maybe drawing horrific things in art class and oh what's with that what's with that kid like why is he always 
What's why is he always drawing those zombies and those skeletons and why that looks a little weird? Is there something wrong with him? I mean, for fuck's sake, like I even had uh, as a kid, I had my parents called the school because of uh, drawings that I had done in class. I had fucking like I, I got put on blast, but and my teacher is trying to explain to my parents that I needed psychological help because I was drawing. Uh, look, they were po- t- pictures of my teachers getting murdered, and I specifically wrote their names on it and pointed arrows to them. So we were watching Deathgasm last <laughs> night, and this exact same thing happened, but no one called Brody's aunt and uncle. No one gave a fucking shit that a metalhead is doing this. It's because you seem too normal, Wes. It's true. It's because I was wearing khakis and a polo. Yeah. That's fucking terrifying. <laughs> I agree with them. How is it, then, that when I don't watch horror movies and don't watch violent things... Or play violent video games or create violent things. I am prone to horrible nightmares. But when I watch these things play out, and Stephen King has mentioned this a lot of times, why people like horror is that they get to see these things played out and don't have them kind of festering in their own heads. Mm -hmm. And it's a healthy outlet. If that's true, then why would somebody ever want to blame these really healthy outlets? Do other people have such a sanitized worldview that when they watch a horror movie, it actually elicits nightmares? Um, I think that horror movies can, when you're, like, the dreams are, are so weird. It's always like your brain processing things and synapses firing and and, and and you just, these dreams happen, right? Yeah, really random and your brain just assigns memories and thoughts to things. Yeah. Exactly. But... I think I can't remember if it was Stephen King or Wes Craven or or Del Toro or whoever said that that uh, the the so-called masters of horror don't have bad dreams because they give them all away, um, and uh, which I thought was a really good line, and I think it is cathartic, and you know there's tons of evidence to support that. Like, like we know as horror fans that when we enjoy these types of things it is an outlet of sorts but it's also for me when people ask me what's the fascination with horror and the grotesque and the macabre I, I just say like it's as simple as things are visually interesting I like the storylines I like the way that these these it just holds my interest more and and but I've always been a story guy and so I find that the stories that happen in horror are just a lot more fun for me to enjoy. And I, and I like to pull things from them because of that and create horror because horror is what inspired me. Mm. So I find that horror doesn't insult my intelligence the way that comedy and dramas do. And it's something I can relate to because I certainly can't relate to some shit like The Notebook, which although some people have tried to tell me that I would really enjoy, is that and like Titanic, things that I'm just absolutely not interested in. Yeah. Can't like, relate to whatsoever. Yeah. So it, it, again, it's just a type of entertainment that we've decided. And, you know, if you look back on some of the most notorious killers in our history, uh, there's lots of evidence about what inspired them, why they did the things they did. And not a lot of it was anything that you would find obviously horrific. No, usually I, they're mothers. Yeah. So it's, it's you find people with like mental illness will gravitate to nearly anything uh, that will be an outlet for the mental problems that they have within themselves. I think normal, rational people could easily enjoy the exact same material and not be inspired to kill anybody, not go on murderous rampages, not be disturbed or... Uh, 
isolated from other people. Well, a lot of the problem was Ted Bundy running off the mouth about the pornography once he'd found God. Now, of course, he's a master manipulator. He was just trying to get into the good graces of those he could, and he had no one else left to fuck with from behind bars. Mm-hmm. So he blamed violent pornography. Mm-hmm. And that just goes hand in hand with horror for some stupid fucking reason. Yeah. So... It was like this master manipulator siding with the God-fearing folk and the Bible thumpers, and it made a lot of sense to too many people, unfortunately. So I think that that's sort of a holdover. Look, it's like people online looking for articles to explain why they shouldn't vaccinate their children, and they find one, and they're like, see, 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 this is exactly why. And they ignore the 2,000 other articles that say... You're crazy. <laughs> Please vaccinate your child. I very, I very much enjoyed this recent note online, uh, a meme about how there are many, many, many autistic people within science and technology, specifically research and medical research. So lo and behold, autism causes vaccinations. Oh, <laughs> that's insane. It makes a lot more sense than vaccinations causing autism for all you anti-vaxxers out there. Um, anyhow, so yeah, creep show. I am so glad that we did this as our first anthology, and there are going to be more anthologies to come. Mm-hmm. What do we have coming up next, Lydia, you ask? What do we have coming up next, Wes? Uh, what do we have coming up next? We have... Oculus. Oculus. We do have Oculus. Not an anthology, something new, and it will have both of us going on about how much we... Love to hate mirrors. <laughs> you remember in the Candyman episode, Wes regaled us with tales of Candyman mirrors. Yeah. And if you remember back to the hardware episode where I detailed having a giant mirror fall on me and my toddler sister and cut us all to bits, <laughs> a good fun time was had by all. <laughs> so Oculus, I don't know, man. It's a WWE endeavor, isn't it? I think it is. Yeah. But you know what? In the horror rainbow, there are many shades of gray and black, and WWE productions are in there. There's some WWF and Creep Show that we just watched. Jordy Verrill is watching the Angry Samoan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Real <laughs> WWE, World Wrestling Federation. They even say it like they're not supposed to anymore. <laughs> Love his stuff. So maybe it isn't in the 50s after all. Maybe it is sometime in the 80s, that particular story. So Jordy Barrel has no fucking sense of the value of a dollar. (laughs) And on that note, I'm Wes Knight. And I'm Typical Lydia. And you've been listening to Dead Air.